The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Today, I'll be talking about an English serial killer who wasn't nearly as brutal as most of the killers we've talked about over the past few years when it came to his homicidal methods. He certainly uh, isn't the most sadistic killer we've covered, but he is the UK's and the world's most prolific serial killer when it comes to murders attributed to one person by a governmental investigative agency, Harold Frederick Shippen, a former doctor who has been linked to over 200 murders occurring between 1975 and 1998. Investigators definitively attributed 215 murders to him and estimate he probably killed closer to 250 people. All of these homicides earned him the dark nickname of Dr. Death. Shipman preyed mostly upon the elderly. Of all his murders, only a handful were committed against a person under the age of 50, and the majority were committed on people 75 and older. He got away with these killings for years by only murdering his own patients and convincing coroners and the victim's families that the deaths were natural by forging medical records. And he would have in all likelihood kept getting away with it had a taxi driver not come forward with concerns over how many patients he'd driven to Dr. Shipman's office, patients who seemed healthy, but died shortly after their visit. And then he also got greedy and tried to steal an inheritance from one of his victims. Shipman was a walking pile of garbage who took an oath to protect his patients and then got right to killing over 200 unlucky souls who were in his care. So strap in and enjoy the fact that this guy is dead. Be glad that odds are your doctor or your grandparents' doctor is far less evil than Dr. Death. In another true crime, thank Nimrod you haven't had to deal with this asshole edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. I am feeling a lot better than last week. Uh, partly thanks to my doctor's office, an office where I receive a lot better care than Dr. Shipman's patients did. My doctor hasn't killed, killed me even one time, so that's good. I'm Dan Cummins, Lucifina's toilet cleaner, Nimrod's most mush-mouthed disciple, Bojangles' dog walker, and Triple M's roadie. And you are listening to Time Suck. Thanks for being curious, Meat Sack. Got some good feedback on Ruby Ridge. I'm excited to share in the updates. 
I'm not as pro-government as I may have come across last week. Uh, I'm not anti-militia. I am anti-Randy Weaver. I'm not anti-standing up against the government if that's the right thing to do, even if that does mean an armed resistance. So uh, maybe I can clear a few things up in today's Time Sucker Updates. Uh, and thanks for the continued ratings and reviews, over 11,000 ratings and reviews on iTunes alone, which is great for a podcast. At least I think so. And, uh, and thanks for subscribing over on YouTube, over 25,000 subscribers now to Bad Magic Productions, where we put out weekly videos of Time Suck and my other uh, public podcast, uh, Scared to Death. And soon we'll be putting stand-up clips on YouTube as well on the same Bad Magic channel. Uh, thanks to everyone who came out to the rec room in Huntington Beach a few weeks uh, weekends back. I felt like crap, but the shows are a blast. Three out of five were, were sold out. Three out of five stars. Uh, having fun telling news stories on the Toxic Thoughts Tour. Also hoping I had fun in St. Louis this past weekend. Uh, at least three of the shows uh, were sold out there too. Big thanks to the Rizzuto Show, not the Rizzo Show, for pushing my stand-up dates. Apparently I've been fucking their name up a lot because uh, I'm an idiot. Uh, off to Salt Lake City this week where multiple shows also sold out. So lucky. Uh, there may only be tickets left to the third show we added on Saturday at this point. The late, the late, late show. Then it's off to Zanies in Nashville, stand-up live in Huntsville, Alabama, Helium in Philly. Uh, I'll be at the Hawaiian Bryans in Honolulu, Hawaii. Man, I can't wait for that. Uh, Sunday, April 5th. Then I'm off to Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, uh, Atlanta, and so much more. All, all the tour dates up at dancummins.tv. Follow me on Instagram at dancummins.comedy to get stand-up clips and show announcements. Uh, another reminder that thanks to you space lizards who uh, support Time Suck, we were able to give $4,200 this month to the Equal Justice Initiative Excited to see who we're donating to next month. Uh, go to egi.org to find out more. Link in the episode description. And then our February true crime theme continues with merch this week. Some more limited edition uh, shirts. We have an, uh, our last installment of the Class of Hell yearbook series. Henry Lee Lucas, one of the confession killers. Ted Bundy and Harold Shipman, today's piece of shit. All getting put in the, ho- in the hall of shame. All getting their faces doodled on and given terrible nicknames. Uh, fascinated with these pieces, pieces of uh, shit. Glad a cartoon face won't ever, uh, or, you know, glad my cart, uh, my face won't be, uh, on a t-shirt like this. Hopefully ever. God, that'd be a terrible twist. Uh, lots of other funky stuff up at badmagicmerch.com now as well. The store has never been cooler. Time suck and scared to death. The secret suck definitely have their own style. Thanks entirely to Logan and Kate at the spicy club. Love all the cool stuff they make. Hail Nimrod. Hail Lucifina. And now let's talk about someone who is not super cool. Uh, One of the worst doctors in human history, Harold Dr. Death Shipman. Britain's general practitioners, especially when Shipman practiced medicine, frequently, uh, you know, one of the pillars of their community, especially if it's a smaller community, offering care, compassion, continuity for their patients. They're trusted by their communities. If you can't trust your doctor, who can you trust? Shipman epically betrayed that trust in the most appalling and distressing way, killing hundreds victims and victimizing arguably uh, the entire uh, nation. Finding out that a long-practicing and trusted doctor was responsible for the deaths of over 200 patients was bound to make a lot of people second-guess their own doctors. Who knows how many additional health problems for who knows how many other people Harold's actions led to. Like most serial killers, Dr. Death had a distinct way of killing his victims, his modus operandi, Over the course of decades and hundreds of murders, his murder pattern was almost always the same. Uh, He overdosed his victims, victims who were patients of his, with either morphine or diamorphine, pharmaceutical heroin. 
He then signed their death certificates and quickly made sure to falsify their medical records to show that the patient's health had been declining in the weeks and months leading up to their deaths. In many cases, he also urged relatives to incinerate the remains of his victims, persuading them that no further investigation would be needed to determine their cause of death. He's a doctor. He's got it under control. Just sign here, and, uh, and that's it. Shipman was cold, calculated, seemingly unemotional with his murders. Unlike a lot of killers, it's hard to understand exactly why he did it. Although I will share the theory that makes the most sense to me after we've looked into him. We know the motivation for a lot of notorious serial killers. Jeffrey Dahmer was trying to create a living sex slave, like a sex zombie. Joseph Duncan was a sexual sadist who received immense sexual satisfaction, satisfaction uh, from the torture and killing of his victims, as did Andre Chikatilo, John Wayne Gacy, many, many others. Many, if uh, not most, serial killers are sexual sadists who find immense sexual gratification in the suffering and death of their victims. Killing is a high they can't seem to achieve any other way. Next to se uh, sexual satisfaction, money seems to be a common motivator. Bell Gunness's murders were financially motivated, as were the murders of H.H. Holmes and many others. Some kill for the notoriety that comes with being a serial killer. Think of Alexander Pashushkin, the chessboard killer who killed primarily because he wanted to have gotten away with murder more than any other serial killer in Russian history. He wanted to, uh, you know, he looked at it like a scoreboard and he wanted to score higher than Chikatilo. Some have serious mommy issues. Think Ed Mother Kemper. For some, like the Zodiac Killer and Dennis Rader, the BTK Killer, the primary motivation seems to be to reinforce a feeling of superiority. The murders were a reason to taunt the police. Some killers seem to get off more on proving to themselves that they're superior to the police by eluding capture than they enjoy the actual act of killing. The motives with uh, Shipman tougher to uncover. He usually did not profit financially from the deaths of his patients. Sometimes, uh, yes, uh, uh, at least once, he didn't seem to forge a will and steal an inheritance, but not typically. He did not uh, receive any sexual satisfaction that we know of from his killings. None of his victims were sexually assaulted in any way before or after their deaths by Shipman. He did not taunt authorities ever with his killings. In fact, due to the sneaky way he killed his patients for years, no one knew that murders were even taking place. So why did he kill? Why did this doctor, whose job was to keep his patients alive and healthy, instead choose to murder them? Taking a look at the totality of his life seems to give us that answer. At least it does for me. Let's see how this sad saga began in today's Time Suck timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. Harold Frederick Shipman was born on January 14th, 1946 in Nottingham, England, on Nottingham's Bestwood Council Estate. Council estates are a form of British public housing akin to what we'd call uh, the projects here in the U.S., not exactly the same, but close. Today, the Bestwood Council Estate is notorious for a lot of criminal activity. Gangs, drugs, a high murder rate. Uh, when Shipman grew up there, it was a blue-collar development populated by low-income, but typically non-criminal, hard-working citizens. Nottingham, where Bestwood is located, is a city in central England of over 300,000 uh, people, over 125 miles north of London, 45 miles northeast of Birmingham. An old city famous for literature. Lord Byron once lived and wrote there, as did D.H. Lawrence also closely linked to the legend of Robin Hood. Robin Hood's main antagonist was the Sheriff of Nottingham, the man who imposed unjust taxes upon the fair people of Nottinghamshire. Harold was raised in a working-class Methodist family and was the second child of three and the oldest son. His older sister, Pauline, 
was born almost eight years before he was, and his younger brother, Clive, was born four years later, four years after he was. Uh, By all accounts, Harold was a bright child, and the family had high hopes for him. No one in his family had ever gone on to study university before he would. And when his mom saw, you know, college potential in her sweet baby boy, her primary purpose in life began, uh, became attending to her firstborn boy. His father was Harold Frederick uh, Shipman, you know, senior, long distance lorry driver. And his mother Vera was a homemaker. And lorry driver is, a, is the English equivalent of a truck driver in America. So American truckers, if you want to sound all posh and refined, tell people you're a lorry driver which makes me picture you driving like a black horse-drawn carriage wearing a top hat and a monocle for some reason. The lorry driver is here. Uh, Harold Jr. was known to friends and family. Growing up as Fred or Freddie, variations of his middle name of Frederick, his nick- uh, nickname that would follow him for the rest of his life. And like I hinted at a moment ago, Freddie was mama's favorite. Vera doted on sweet Freddie, and she instilled in him an early sense of superiority that would follow him for the rest of his life. Freddie was a huge mama's boy growing up, and Vera controlled who he could talk to or interact with. Can't risk some neighborhood dirtbag, right? Or harlot, tainting her sweet, sweet Freddie boy, ruining his potential. Vera's controlling parental style led to Freddie having few friends and a pretty isolated childhood. So fun for Freddie. How strange and terrible for a parent to obsess over one child and devote all their energy to making sure that child accomplishes things they, might, they may not even want to accomplish, right? Those kind of parents have always driven me crazy. I feel like I see them most often with sports. It's usually the dad in my experience, the dad who is determined to make sure his boy becomes a starting quarterback or the star point guard or cleanup batter or ace pitcher or whatever else it was that he wanted to accomplish when he was a kid but didn't have the talent or the opportunity or the right dad pushing him. Weird, right? Let the kid do what makes him happy. I've yet to see how it's going to play out, but my kids, uh, you know, all they have to do is do their chores, be respectful, learn how to contribute to the family household, You know, they have to do their best in class, get their homework done, be involved in some kind of extracurricular activity like sports or music lessons or something, right? And then we have a deal in place to help them pay for college and strongly encourage them to either go or if they're not going to go have a plan to do something else that doesn't require college, check in with them, ask them what they want to do, tell them what the reality of that profession is when it comes to income and what type of lifestyle it will allow them to have. And then just give, you know, we just give them as much info as possible. So when they're planning out their future, they have the most knowledge that, you know, that we're able to provide for them. To me, that this approach is based entirely around common sense. What do you enjoy? Can you do that for a job? Will it pay the bills? Yes to all of that? Then have at it. Don't care if you're a doctor or a carpenter or a factory owner or a factory worker. But so many parents can't seem to handle that approach, right? They have an agenda. Why? Why do people do that? People like Harold's mom, Vera. People who have to protect their, am- or project, excuse me, their ambitions and their goals onto their kids. Not a fan. Not a fan of that approach. Uh, years later, when Sweet Freddy's face was plastered across tabloids nationwide for being the most prolific serial killer in British history, an old former neighbor would recall, Vera was friendly enough, but she really did see her family as superior to the rest of us. Not only that, but you could tell Harold was her favorite. The one she saw as the most promising of her three children. Another terrible parent move to obviously prefer one child over the others. So much so that the neighbors noticed. That's so fucked up. Like I joke about my kids a lot in my stand-up, uh, and I tease my daughter Monroe especially, but I don't actually favor one of my kids over the other. On any given day, one irritates me more than the other, or I worry about more, you know, worry more about one than the other, or maybe I relate to one at this period of their development more than the other, but I try to never show actual favoritism. It's so, it's so fucked up. 
How sad for the kids uh, or kids that aren't preferred, right? To grow up hearing about how great their brother and sister is. If you don't, if you can only act more like Freddie. Freddie got straight A's on his report card. Why can't you get straight A's? Freddie got a scholarship to the university. Freddie's going to make something of himself. Why don't you work harder to get into to, to university like Freddie? Why don't you want to make some of yourself like Freddie? I wonder if after he was arrested, if Freddie's sister and brother had any thoughts of, aha, I knew Freddie was a piece of shite. Mama was wrong. I might not have went to medical school, but at least I didn't kill anyone. Fuck Freddie. Ah, uh, sucks for the kid being favored too, right? Sets them up for their siblings to resent them. Poor Pauline and Clive, the perennial silver and bronze medalist of the Shipman household. They'd grow up in Freddie's shadow. It must have been a, a especially frustrating for Vera, who was almost eight years old when Freddie showed up, right? She, she was number one for damn near eight years. Then new kid shows up and she goes from favorite kid to the kid that needs to be more like favorite kid. In his early years of schooling, Freddie did very well, made mama proud. But then when he reached the upper grade levels, his grades became pretty mediocre. Wonder if mama just blamed his teachers. They're jealous of you, Freddie. They don't want to treat you fairly. They, they know you already know more than them, Freddie. Uh, former classes have described Freddie as being a quiet loner and reserved when he was in school, except when it came to sports. There he seemed to break out of his shell a bit. He was athletic. He was really good at rugby. He was a solid distance runner and track. According to former teammates, he was super competitive, uh, especially as he got older. Then when he was 16, 17, he played sports with an angry edge, which made sense. He was, he was angry at that time. He was angry that his mother was now dying of lung cancer. On June 21st, 1963, when she was only 43 years old, Vera succumbed to the disease that had been ravaging her body for months. And Freddie naturally was devastated. The woman who loved him more than anyone else in the world was now gone. The person who made him feel the most special, the person he tried so hard to please, to, to live up to her expectations. For months leading up to her death, he'd been watching cancer destroy his mother. Every day when school let out, he'd hurry home and make his mother a hot cup of tea and chat with her, sit by her bed, tell her how school was going, talk about plans for the future, ask her how she was feeling and what the doctor was saying about her prognosis. And the prognosis was always bleak. And while her illness hit her whole family hard, it seemed to hit Harold the hardest. He wanted to get in every minute with his mother that he could while she was still with him. He spent more time with her than his brother and sister did, which was exactly what she preferred. She counted the minutes as she waited for him to make it home from school. Her time with Freddie was the highlight of her day. This is likely when Freddie decided he would become a doctor. And this is when Freddie learned to have the bedside manner that his early patients, when he worked later as a family physician, uh, would love about him. If only they knew that in many cases, while he sat near them and smiled and listened carefully to their complaints and concerns, he was planning to kill them. Toward the end of her life, Vera was constantly in severe pain. Her only relief from the agony of cancer came from her family physician who would inject her with morphine, just like Harold would later inject his patients with morphine. And Freddie, so often at his mother's side, watched many of these injections take place. How much did this influence his later murders? Did he at least initially want to ease his patient's sufferings? when he gave them a lethal dose? Or would he spend much of his later life continually just recreating his mother's final moments with his patients? Some kind of sick, weird fantasy. Uh, did he recreate his mother's final scene over and over again? A patient with a cup of tea nearby, sitting with their doctor, finding sweet relief in morphine to try and, I don't know, just access the, 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 the feelings he had with his mother, to be there with her again, to, to, to want to kind of do it over somehow. I don't know. 1965, two years after his mother's passing when he was 19, despite others later recalling him having a healthy superiority complex in an arrogant way about him, despite seeming to always feel like he was the smartest man in the room, 
Freddie initially failed his medical entrance exams. To his credit, he didn't let the failure break him. He redoubled his study efforts, took the exam again, and passed it. Also to his credit, he did so well the second time uh, that he received a scholarship to start studying at Leeds University Medical School, where he would also uh, serve his mandatory hospital internship. So off to Leeds he goes. Leeds is just 70 miles north of Nottingham. The big city, Leeds, the second biggest city in all of England, with a metro area population of over two and a half million. Also, super random trivia for all you bubble water drinkers, carbonated water, a.k.a. soda water, a.k.a. sparkling and seltzer water, invented in Leeds, England in 1767 by Joseph Priestley when he discovered a method of infusing water with carbon dioxide by accident in a beer brewery. He wrote of a peculiar satisfaction after drinking it. And then in 1772, he published a paper titled Impregnating Water with Fixed Air. And people have been loving pregnant water ever since. Everybody else uh, here in the uh, Suck Dungeon likes the pregnant water other than me, I think. I, I, don't, I don't care. I like tonic. So I guess I, I like a certain kind of bubbly water. I don't care for the soda water. Joe, Lindsay Harmony, love it. Not sure where Zach stands on it. A lot of famous people have come from Leeds. None more than uh, more famous than Melanie Janine Brown, a.k.a. Mel B, a.k.a. Super Sexy Scary Spice of the Spice Girls. Did you know that the Spice Girls are the top-selling girl group of all time worldwide? 85 million records sold. Destiny's Child didn't even sell that many records. They sold uh, 23 million copies of their first album, Spice. And to this day, drunk bachelorette parties are still butchering wannabe at bars across the world. If you want to be my lover, you got to get with my friends. Make it last forever. Friendship never ends. I can just picture just hammered women like up on a table singing that song, arms around each other. And what does this have to do with Harold Freddie Shipman, a.k.a. Dr. Death? Well, Melanie Jane Chisholm, a.k.a. Melanie C., a.k.a. Sporty Spice, is Freddie's niece. And when she was a little kid, she accompanied Freddie on at least two of the house calls he made when he killed some of his patients. She saw them die. And that experience would lead her to later write a minor Spice Girls hit, Move Over. Hold it down, feel the noise, let them know it's a fight. Pick it up, it's alive. Hold it down, feel the noise. Be sure and talk about that when the topic of the Spice Girls come up. Uh, if you want everyone to think you're a deranged fucking lunatic, because that is not true. I just got uh, stuck in a Spice Girl wormhole. When I found out Mel B was from Leeds, and as usual, I decided to make it weird for all of you. Back to real information now. In Leeds, at medical school, Harold remained an outsider, a loner. But classmates would later say he didn't have to be. They'd say he had every opportunity to be part of the in-groups, be one of the cool kids. But he wasn't interested. He didn't care. He continued, he continued to play rugby, run for uh, track and field. He was good. Uh, he was also considered to be good-looking. Uh, he just made no effort to be part of the school uh, social life. Many of his former teachers and fellow students would barely remember him at all. Uh, interestingly, some who did remember him claimed that he looked down on them and seemed to be confused by the way most young people uh, chose to behave. One said, it was, it, it, was, ah, it was as if he tolerated us. If someone told a joke, he would smile patiently, but Fred never wanted to join in. It seems funny because I later heard he'd been a good athlete. So you'd uh, have thought he would have been more of a team player. And a former teacher said, I don't think he ever had a girlfriend. In fact, he took his older sister to school dances. They made a strange couple. But then he was a bit strange. He was a pretentious lad. Weird, man. Taking your older sister to school dances? What? It's creepy. Can we all agree that's creepy? You know, it's 1965. Other kids are starting to become hippies and flower children, starting to grow their hair out, smoke pot, drop acid, rock out, make free love. 
and you're going to a school dance with your big sis, it's almost eight years older than you. Hopefully he and Pauline were bumping and grinding. Hopefully she wasn't leaning forward in some fishnets and a miniskirt, slamming her ass up against his junk while he gave her butt a few slaps. Pretty sure people didn't do that back then. I think I'm thinking that happened a lot more when I went to school, at least in the two live crew videos uh, that I would watch over and over. I hope my kids, Kyler Monroe, are always close, but I, but I don't ever need to see them in the same school dance photo. Not as a couple. Uh, luckily, around the end of 1965, beginning, in, uh, beginning of 1966, Harold starts dating his future wife. She's not his sister. He starts dating a 17-year-old local farmer's daughter, Primrose May uh, Oxtoby. He'd met her at a Leeds bus stop. Her background was similar to Fred's. Her mother restricted her friendships, controlled her activities. She'd have a, had a very sheltered childhood so far. Primrose was delighted to have finally found a boyfriend. And I gotta say, the two made for an odd-looking couple. Not that Harold had Hollywood leading man looks, but he was significantly more attractive than Primrose to a degree you just don't see very often, which is why I mention it here. Visually odd. In, in a way, it would be odd if like Brad Pitt or Leonardo DiCaprio were suddenly romantically linked to Melissa McCarthy or Kathy Bates. Like if you were casting a sitcom and you needed someone to play a lonely virgin cat lady with a haircut and a way of dressing that was completely devoid of any sexuality, you would cast at least looks wise a young Primrose Shipman. And I feel like this speaks, to, I'm bringing it up, I feel like it speaks to Freddie's social loner, sheltered mama's boy identity. I don't know if you've ever known a guy who is painfully shy or antisocial with the opposite sex and then ends up just marrying the first girl bold enough to, to give him a handy randy, right? Bold enough to take the lead, show obvious romantic interest in them. Someone who isn't exciting, isn't really attractive, but is stable, dependable, won't cause problems, a safe choice, the choice mom would approve of, right? I have, I have met some of these guys. I, I think it's some of these guys when I was younger and, and I feel like uh, Harold picking Primrose, it reads as this kind of choice to me a choice Lucifina would find terribly boring. I realize I'm speculating a lot here, but do a Google image search of Harold and Primrose shipment and tell me I'm wrong. Ah, uh, he's a weird dude. I just felt like he just, it was the easy choice. Like, oh, okay, fine. The couple gets married when Primrose was five months pregnant with their first child on November 5th, 1966. Uh, they didn't wait to get busy. Their daughter, Sarah, would be born on February 14th, 1967. The young couple would go on to have a total of four children, Primrose would stick by Freddie's side for his entire life. She was totally devoted to him in a way you don't often see when it comes to the spouses of convicted killers. She'd later defend him and believe he was innocent during his trial. Not, not her sweet Freddie. He just couldn't have done it. She would, she would believe he was innocent, you know, after he, he was convicted and in prison. She may have questioned him at the very, very end. We'll get to that later. But up until the very end of his life, she was totally uh, committed to, nope, there's no way he could have done it. And I do think she, uh, you know, would believe after he passed that he still didn't do it. Uh, we don't know much else about Fred's medical school years. Outside of a few people thinking he was pretentious, no one else seems to have thought about him at all. Didn't stand out, and he was largely pretty forgettable. Uh, 1970, Freddie and Primrose have their second child and first boy. Christopher is born on April 21st. A few weeks later, Freddie graduates from Leeds, becoming a junior houseman at the Pontefract General Infirmary in West Yorkshire. Junior Houseman was a term used for doctors who had just graduated from medical school but hadn't practiced medicine yet. Uh, they were required to work under the supervision of more established doctors and medical staff until they proved they were competent enough not to kill patients on their own. And despite appearing that Dr. Shipman may have begun to kill his patients almost immediately after leaving medical school, uh, he was able to convince other doctors that he was, you know, not killing his patients. 
which is the very, which is probably the most important thing a doctor should prove, right? That's the, that's the thing you got to like nail the most if you're a young doctor. I don't needlessly kill my patients. The very next year, 1971, is when many think he may have killed for the first time. Within months of obtaining his license to practice medicine, 67-year-old Margaret Thompson dies on his watch. She was recovering from a stroke. Hospital records indicate that Shipman was alone with her when she died. It looked like her recovery was going well. And then she took a very sudden turn for the worse. Uh, none of the deaths that occurred on Shipman's watch prior to 1975 would be uh, able to be officially proven to be murders, but Thompson's death would fit the pattern. He would continue his entire grandma and grandpa killing career, mostly grandmas. Uh, a patient who Shipman was giving painkillers to would suddenly die well before anyone expected them to die uh, and then, you know, obviously die under his care. The following year, right, in October of 1972, after possibly quietly killing several other patients battling cancer, he kills a toddler, a young girl who's only four years old. She dies on October 11th. Susan Garfit had cerebral palsy. She was at Pontefract the day she died with a bad case of pneumonia. Her mother, Ann Garfit, remembers Dr. Shipman telling her in a soothing voice that her child was going to die in the near future and that medicating her any further would just prolong her suffering. Mrs. Garfit asked him to please be kind to her child that she stepped out for a cup of tea. When she returned after not being gone for more than 10 minutes, a nurse told her that her daughter Susie had died. She was shocked. And in retrospect, she wondered if Shipman had taken her request as an unspoken uh, piece of consent to euthanize her daughter. Later on, an, inquire, an in, inquiry commission would decide that Shipman had likely given this child a lethal injection. Man, what the fuck? Can you imagine if you're a parent, a doctor is saying that to you? Like your kid is battling some horrible chronic illness and they tell you, hey, I know you love your kid and stuff, but uh, I'm sure your kid would like to live as long as possible, you know, maybe... Uh, that's just a few more days or weeks or months, but what do you think about just getting this kind of over with now? Just, you know, just kind of maybe let me put her down. I would lose my fucking mind, right? If a doctor, you know, said anything remotely like that to me, what do I think about just, you know, not giving her medicine and letting her go? I don't know. What do you think about me coming back here with a gun and lighting you the fuck up? Give her the medicine. Ah, uh, 1974, the father of two starts working as a general practitioner at the Abraham Amrod Medical Center in Todd Morton, West Yorkshire. Todd Morton, just under 30 miles west of Leeds. It's a quaint little market town of around 15,000 people. And here, Shipman initially thrives, but quickly starts to make some enemies. Many former colleagues would recall uh, him often acting unnecessarily rude, going out of his way to make other colleagues look and feel stupid, a word he frequently used to describe anyone he didn't like. He was confrontational and combative. He seemed to enjoy belittling and embarrassing others. He was pushy. It was his way or the wrong way. He seemed to think he... Uh, or seemed to, you know, think that he would, he knew more than just about anyone else he worked with, even when he was working with much more experienced doctors. He was very arrogant. Not yet 30 years old, Shipman had become a control freak. And he got away with being an asshole for a few years because while he uh, wasn't well-liked, he, he was a skilled doctor. His doctor skills were respected. He did seem to effectively treat his patients, at least the ones he, you know, didn't think were going to die soon anyway, so he might as well kill them. Then a few years into his practice at Todd Morton, something went wrong. His career as a doctor almost came to a quick end shortly after he started to complain to his colleagues about his physical health, to, uh, you know, having some problems, including experiencing a few blackouts. He initially told his partners that he was suffering from epilepsy, which was not true. He used the inaccurate diagnosis of epilepsy as a cover-up for an addiction to painkillers. By saying he had epilepsy, he claimed, uh, you know, he would need a ride to and from work because it wasn't safe for him to drive. And it wasn't safe for him to drive, but not because of epilepsy. He was high on morphine. 
The truth was discovered when his receptionist, Marjorie Walker, stumbled upon some disturbing entries in a local druggist-controlled narcotics ledger. The record showed that Shipman had been prescribing unusually large and frequent amounts of uh, pethidine in the names of several patients. Moreover, he'd written numerous prescriptions for the drug on behalf of the practice for them to just uh, have on hand for patients. Although this was not unusual, drugs were kept on hand for emergencies and immediate treatments. Uh, the prescribed amounts were excessive and added up to more than they actually had in their inventory. Uh, pethidine is a morphine-like uh, anal analgesic, a pain reliever that was initially thought to have no addictive properties. Now the World Health Organization classifies it as being dangerously addictive. Dr. Shipman was looking like a junkie, hooked on what was essentially medical-grade heroin. By 1976, his medical colleagues had discovered his addiction. They knew he was writing fraudulent prescriptions for large amounts of the opiate for his own personal use. He also quite likely was using the drug to kill a number of patients. Following the discovery of Shipman's overprescribing, a covert investigation by the practice followed. A fellow doctor, Dr. John Daker, discovered that many of his patients on the prescription list had neither required nor ever received the drug. Daker uh, challenged Fred in a staff meeting, might be Daker, as one of his partners, Dr. Michael Grieve, would later recall. We sat around with Fred sitting on one side and up comes John on the opposite and says, now young Fred, can you explain this? And he puts uh, before him evidence that he had been uh, gleaning, showing that young Fred had been prescribing pethidine to patients and that they'd never received the pethidine. And in fact, the pethidine had found its way into Fred's very own veins. No idea why Dr. Uh, Dacre referred to him as young Fred, by the way, it's in that quote there. It's never made clear. I'm guessing that was, uh, maybe there was another Fred of the practice. Uh, maybe, he, I guess he had to go by old Fred. Maybe he just you know, got to be Fred. Or maybe Dr. Dacre was just a weirdo who had, you know, would add unnecessary qualifiers to people's names. Uh, why, young Fred, have you met Frumpy Jane, a husky Ted? Frumpy Jane took over for Big Bottom Billy, who started this practice quite a few years back with wonky-eyed Jim and stinky Gina. Uh, realizing his career was on the line, Fred begged for a second chance. He admitted to abusing pethidine and basically wanted to be given a clean slate and assured his fellow doctors that he could handle it. But uh, because uh, he was an asshole to a lot of his uh, fellow colleagues, they told him, uh, nope, that's not going to cut it. Uh, you're done here. Shipman became enraged, stormed out, hurling his medical bag to the ground, threatening to resign. He made a big show. His partners were shocked by how angry he became. They hadn't seen this side of him before. Shortly after his, he left, his wife Primrose stormed back into his office where his peers were still discussing the best way to dismiss him, always thinking that nothing could ever be sweet Freddie's fault. She told the other doctors that her husband would never resign and yelled at them that they would have to force him out. You want, you want, you want, Freddie won't go quietly, not my Freddie. Weird, man. I think I'd be a little embarrassed to have my wife barge into some office, you know, where I worked and yell at my coworkers for threatening to fire me. I feel like, I, feel like I'd uh, give someone shit for a long time if I saw that happen. Like anytime a situation got contentious after that, you know, it'd be hard not to say stuff like, do you want to talk this out? Uh, you're just going to storm out again and send your wife in to yell at us. You're going to send in your wife. You're going to just, oh, you're so sad. Uh, took two years, but ultimately Dr. Shipman was forced out of the practice. For whatever reason, they weren't able to just immediately kick him out. So I guess Primrose was right, right? It was, was going to be hard. It wasn't, they did have to force him out. Uh, two years later, he's caught red-handed and law enforcement was brought in. He was fined 600 pounds on drugs and forgery charges, right? They caught him with the morphine again. While he was not barred from being a doctor, he did receive a warning letter from the General Medical Council, England's GMC. He was forced to undergo psychiatric treatment in a drug rehab facility near York if he wanted to continue to practice medicine. So he did so. He was out of work for uh, over a year. 
Before being sent to rehab on March 17th, 1975, he kills his first official victim. And the only killing authorities would later be positive he carried out during his short stint as a GP in Todd Morton. An autopsy would later confirm that Eva Lyons, a 70-year-old woman, was given an intentional overdose by Shipman in Todd Morton. Eva Lyons was suffering from terminal cancer when Shipman paid a visit to her home and he gave her an intravenous injection into the back of her hand. And as we've noted, she was uh, probably not the first person he killed by a long shot. Investigators think he likely killed three other patients in 1975 in Todd Morton, but he just wasn't quite enough evidence to, uh, to be certain in those other cases. In 1977, Shipman is back in business. He gets accepted onto the staff at Donnybrook Medical Center, a group practice in Hyde in the Greater Manchester area, just 30 miles from Todd Morton. Uh, Dr. Jeffrey Moisey of the center would later explain, his approach was that I've had this problem, this conviction for, uh, for abuse of pethidine. I've undergone treatment. I am now clean. All I can ask you to do is trust me on this issue and to watch me. But don't watch me too close because I got oh so many nanas and grandpops to finish off. I will kill all of your nanas. Uh, Dr. Moisey and the other GPs at Donnybrook felt that his honesty about his past opioid addiction was admirable. And they felt good about giving him a second chance. And he seemed to be a lot less of a dick at Donnybrook than he'd been back at Todd Morton. He did earn a reputation for being an arrogant uh, asshole towards the junior staff, but he was cool to his colleagues and uh, never mean enough to have anyone want him to be fired. He's just a guy who was uh, sometimes an asshole in a world full of other people who are sometimes assholes. Uh, mostly he appeared to be a hardworking doctor who enjoyed the trust of his patients, colleagues, and community as a whole. He would remain on staff at Donnybrook for almost two decades, working there throughout the 1980s, building up a massive list of patients and doing a whole heap of nana murdering. 1978 investigators would later determine that Shipman had murdered at least four people. Two of the murders were committed in August. Two were committed in December. The youngest of the victims was 73. The following year, on March 20th, 1979, his son David is born. He also killed at least two more people in 79. Alice Maud Gorton, 76, and Jack Leslie Shelmerdine, who was 77. He may have taken 1980 off from the murder, uh, for murdering. He's got, a, he's got a baby and two other kids at home, probably not getting enough sleep to properly focus on overdosing his patients. 1981, he kills at least one woman, and, and then he kills at least one more in 1982. Both were over 80 years old. And then in 1982, Freddie and Primrose's fourth and final child, Sam, is born, another boy. Sam cries a lot due to colic for the first year of his life, and Freddie will later confess to considering overdosing his son at numerous points. His logic was that no one would suspect anything since he and his wife had already raised three children out of infancy, and no reports of abuse you know, were, were made against him. He knew that he could slip his son just a little too much morphine, make it look like a case of SIDS. He also wasn't worried about his wife Primrose being overly stricken with grief because Sam really did cry so much and everyone in the family, you know, thought he was a shitty kid and, you know, he knew that deep down they all kind of wanted him dead. JK, uh, Fred did not consider his own kid, killing his own kid that I'm aware of. I do wonder though, if he'd been casually killing patients for years in a way that no one was detecting, was he ever tempted to off some non-patient? Right, like if I killed 10, 20 people at work, no one ever suspected a thing. You know, if I knew exactly how much morphine to make it look like they just passed away in their sleep or something and there would never be an autopsy, would I use that skill to get rid of people who were just a problem for me in the rest of the world? <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course I would. If I didn't have a moral problem with murder in that sense. Like if you knew how to kill somebody and you'd already killed several people and you always got away with it and then you had like, I don't know, a neighbor who just wouldn't turn their music down no matter how many times you fucking ask them nicely. Please, come on, it's after 10 p.m., right? It just it bleeds through the wall. We're just trying to get some sleep. Can you please listen to Skinnerd 
fucking earlier in the day. That's all. Right? And they're just like, man, fuck you, man. Fuck you. I'll listen to my shit however I want, man. However fucking loud I want, man. You suck my dick. I'll fucking skin it all goddamn night. You know, you're like, God, please, please. Just a little, a little less loud in the evening. I mean, would it not be tempting to maybe just sneak in there? Right? I don't know. You know, maybe, maybe break one of his gas lines, make it look like it was a carbon monoxide poisoning, really just fucking morphing him, you know, right into permanent sleep. I don't know. Why am I thinking about this so much? Harold, uh, I don't even have a problem with the neighbor right now. You know, my, my neighbor that I had a problem with is gone. So I, I don't need to kill anybody. But I'm just saying, you know, if I could and I didn't have a moral problem with it, I'm just, I'm just surprised that he just, you know, he, fo- he kept it at work. You know, he was, he was good about compartmental, compartmentalizing, right? He didn't seem to have ever done anything like that. He, he, left, he left work at work. Uh, 1983, Shipman kills at least two more victims. One was 90, the other was 77. He's like, a, he's like a one-man grandparent extermination service. In 1983, Shimon is also interviewed on the flagship BBC show Pan- uh, Panorama in a documentary called World in Action, discussing the treatment of the mentally ill in the community. And I looked for that 1983 documentary. It's very hard to find, like impossible to find. Damn it. I would have loved to have played a clip. I would love if there was like some weird outtake that they never aired at the time, but then they like looked at later like, oh my, oh my God, he wasn't kidding. You know, so how do you how do you think, uh, Doctor Shipman, we we should uh, take care of in a perfect you know situation? What's the best way to treat the mentally ill? I, I would just give them uh, morphine until they didn't wake up, and then you really don't have to worry about it, do you? Just give them too much morphine, and then their problems go away, and they're no longer a burden on society, and uh, you know we've thinned the herd a bit, and things are much better for all, uh, wouldn't you think? <laughs> so I don't know if that was ever said. 1984. The pace of his murders picks up considerably. Starting January 7th, at least nine murders are attributed to him. One murder, even committed on Christmas Eve, he euthanized without permission, aka murdered, Eileen Teresa Cox. She was 72. He kills at least 11 more people in 1985, including four between February 1st and February 22nd, as well as three in December. All but one of the murders fit the normal shipment MO. He visits an elderly patient, the youngest uh, being 69, the oldest being 85 uh, this year. And then, you know, gives him the death juice and then he bounces. Uh, one murder was atypical for Shipman in 85. He killed Peter Lewis, who was only 41 years old on January 2nd. Freddie arrived at the home of Lewis uh, 7 p.m. on New Year's Day. I guess, I guess uh, you know, he, he does this on New Year's Day, but I guess, you know, his time of death would be uh, attributed to January the next day, early the next morning. He carries a doctor's bag, was actually escorted by his wife, Primrose, who sat on the sofa while her husband killed Peter. 41 years old, cared for by his intelligent, articulate school teacher wife. Mr. Lewis was much younger than the t- typical shipman victim. Despite his much younger age, he was every bit as weak as the elderly ladies who had been such easy targets for shipman. He'd been diagnosed with inoperable cancer, which had spread from his stomach uh, to the rest of his body. He returned home from uh, the hospital on Christmas Day, 1984, to die in his home. An argument could be made that this killing and maybe some of the other killings were mercy killings, maybe some kind of assisted suicide, but, but none of these people asked for this. There was not a record of Peter Lewis or of any other shipment victim being suicidal before he killed him. No record of any of the members of their families recalling the victim wanting Shipman to help them along to the other side. No, he seems to have just played God and made the decision for himself about you know, when they should die over and over again. And the murder of Peter Lewis, despite the terminal diagnosis, again, does not seem to be a mercy killing. Peter was in a great deal of pain that day and Shipman came over to give him a morphine injection he asked uh, Mr. Lewis's wife to hold the needle for him while he injected what was going to be the lethal dose. She wouldn't do it. She didn't handle the sight of blood very well, so she left the room. 
when she returned to the room, she saw Shipman with one hand around her husband's throat. How fucking weird is that? She later said, uh, then when she first saw it happen, she thought uh, it looked like Shipman was trying to strangle him. Then when she asked what the doctor, uh, the doctor what he was doing, he said that he was preventing Mr. Lewis from swallowing his tongue. Uh-huh, yeah, right. He was finishing him off. I wonder what happened. Did Mr. Lewis get suspicious? Did Freddie say something to him? And then he was worried he'd, re he'd repeat that to his wife. I think this might be it because uh, right before walking in on Dr. Shipman choking her husband, his wife would uh, later swear that she had heard Peter, uh, heard the doctor say, give it up, lad. You've all had enough. We can't take it anymore. Sounds like Shipman decided that it was time for Peter to die. So he died. He didn't feel like coming around for any more house calls. The following year, 1986, Shipman kills at least eight more times. The youngest was Beatrice Toft at 59. The oldest was James Wood at 82. 1987, another eight murders are attributed to Shipman. He kills at least seven more times in 1988, most dying in the winter months like they had uh, every year. He almost always killed during the winter. Why? Well, with so many elderly patients catching colds and flus on top of their other illnesses, he was able to conceal the killings under the guise of complications from said illnesses much easier in the winter which again speaks to these murders not being mercy killings. They were, you know, crimes of opportunity. He was able to get away with it, so he did. Right? If he was just helping along older people in pain, why wouldn't he help them along in the summer? Uh, 1989, he kills no less than 12 more times. He kills six between September 22nd and November 6th alone. And from 1990 to 1992, only a handful of murders have been proven. No one knows why he seems to have slowed down at this time. Maybe he experienced some kind of close call. Maybe he almost got caught. You know, he wanted to take it easy for a little bit. Maybe Primrose told him to stop killing his patients. And he was like, yes, mommy. I'm, I mean, yes, wife. 1993, he surprises his fellow doctors at, at his group practice by bailing, opening up his own office at 21 Market Street in the middle of town. He takes his approximately 3,000 patients with him and his partners are both caught off guard and not pleased. Dick move, Freddie. Shipman had a very successful solo practice after that. And now he, he really gets to killing now that he's uh, under less supervision. While Shipman is thought to have killed at least 71 patients while at the Donnabrook practice, he is believed to have killed at least 170 while he was working as a solo practitioner at his surgery in Market Street. And a surgery, by the way, is what they call a medical clinic in England. Going to surgery uh, is synonymous with going to the doctor's office in America. So if you're, a, if you're an American and an English friend tells you he's heading out uh, for surgery, it might not be as bad as you think. Uh, 1993. The now 47-year-old Shipman murders no less than 15 people. On February 24th, he kills two elderly women in the same day. He kills at least 11 more in 94. Uh, again, mainly elderly women. A couple of dudes thrown in as well. 1995, the homicide numbers almost triple. Investigators would later identify 28 Shipman murders that took place between January 9th and December 14th. 28. Killed seven people in March alone. Two of his victims in 95 were under the age of 50. The youngest, Conrad Peter Avbar, or, uh, Avkar Robinson, was only 43. 1996, he kills at least 30 people. 30. He killed someone in every single month in 1996. 1997, there are only nine murders on record attributed to Shipman. All nine of them happened between January 2nd and February 28th. Many think he uh, likely continued to kill at a similar pace after that, but the, but reasons are unclear, or, or four reasons that are unclear. It became harder to attribute deaths to Shipman after February 1997. He found some new sneaky way to do it. In March 1998, a local undertaker, Deborah Massey, finally notices that Shipman's patients are really fucking dying a lot of the time, like way more than the other doctors. 
She starts to think that he is either killing his patients or he is the worst fucking doctor of all time. She notices that almost all of his patients die while in a similar pose, right? The way, the way they're found. Most are fully clothed. Uh, they're usually sitting up or reclining, right, on a, on a sofa. She brings up her concerns to her father, Alan Massey, who, ran, who runs the family funeral home. He's concerned enough about what his daughter has noticed that he decides to approach Shipman about this directly, who reassures him that there was nothing to be concerned about. Luckily, Deborah doesn't just drop it when Freddie tells her there's nothing to worry about, which would be pretty crazy to do. I mean, how often is approaching somebody that you think might be a murderer and asking them if they've been murdering led to a confession? Like, fuck, almost never, right? Get out of here. And Dr. Shipman, yeah, please, Deborah, call me Freddie. Freddie, I hate to bother you, but my dad and I started uh, putting some puzzle pieces together recently and we came to the conclusion that you've, you've probably been murdering a whole bunch of people for a long time. Before I went to the police, I just wanted to ask you, have you been murdering? Have you been killing a lot of your patients? Uh, no, Deborah, I've, I've not been doing that. Oh, oh, well, <laughs> okay then, good God. Now, now I feel silly. <laughs> I'm so glad I just didn't go to the police first and waste their time since, you, I mean, you clearly didn't do it. I mean, I mean, I asked you very clearly. And, and I said, no, you sure did. Apologies. Apologies, Freddie. Uh, I won't bring it up again. No, Deborah goes to Dr. Linda, Linda Reynolds of the Brooks Surgery in Hyde and, and prompted by Deborah and her dad, Dr. Reynolds expresses concerns to John Pollard, the coroner for the South Manchester District about the high death rate among Shipman's patients. In particular, they're concerned about the large number of cremation forms for elderly women that had needed to be countersigned. Uh, she suspected that Shipman was either through negligence or intent killing these women her father, Alan, told the coroner, anybody can die in a chair, but there's no set pattern. And Dr. Shipman's always seem to be the same or very similar. Could be sat in a chair, could be laid on the settee, but I would say 90% are always fully closed. There was never anything in the house that I saw that indicated the person had been ill. It just seemed that the person, where they were, had died. There was something that just quite didn't fit. And then the coroner alerted the police. Then Shipman's patient records are examined without him being alerted to the fact that they're being examined by the police and they look clean. The causes of death and the treatments do match up perfectly. What the police do not discover during this initial investigation is that Shipman had been rewriting his patient's records after he killed them to make it look like they were in much worse shape than they were actually in, to make their deaths look less suspicious. And apparently if they would have just documented things more thoroughly, or inspected, excuse me, the documents more thoroughly, they would have discovered this. Uh, the shipment inquiry that would later determine that shipment had killed way, way more people than he would uh, you know, go to prison for would cast blame on British police for butchering this initial investigation, stating that they should have assigned more experienced officers to the case and that those more experienced officers would have noticed the medical records had been forged. Between April 17th, 1998, when the police abandoned the investigation initially and Shipman's eventual later arrest, he would kill at least three more people. The, in the initial investigation may have helped catch Shipman, though, by making him deviate from his normal MO and get sloppy. He may have felt like the walls were closing in on him now and desperately tried to make a big chunk of money off his final victim to help uh, possibly finance a quiet escape from the area. That that's one line of thought. Uh, another is that not getting caught the first time emboldened him, made him think he was so much smarter than everybody else. So much smarter that he could just easily talk his way out of trouble if the police ever came back for him again. Just show them more falsified documents, trick them again. And because he felt even more untouchable, he took things further, got greedy, and then got caught. Still others speculate that for reasons known only to him, he wanted 
to get caught. Uh, before we go further and go over the murder that will get him caught, uh, it is time for our first sponsor. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by Dr. Shipman's Papa and Nana Extermination Service. Are you in desperate need of an inheritance that you were sure you would get years ago, but Nana just keeps refusing to head towards the light? Do you have that next new car sitting on the lot waiting for you to drive it home, but Papa just won't be another one who bites the dust? Do you have a sick Christmas morning already planned full of awesome gifts for yourself, but you can't unwrap them until Nana says, fuck it, kicks the bucket, and takes that dirt nap? Call Dr. Shipman's Papa and Nana Extermination Service today. Give your grandparents a little head start on the right off into the sunset. Don't delay. You're just a needle and some morphine away from having what you were going to get tomorrow today. Dr. Shipman's Papa and Nana Extermination Service is not responsible for legal consequences that may arise from having your grandparents murdered. They're also not responsible for any backlash brought on by this terrible and sensitive fake ad. Okay, forget about that horrible fake company. We have real good companies to talk about now. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. 
Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs caused me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. And now I'm back to today's tale. Never left, if you're watching on YouTube. Uh, Here's how this final murder went down, the one that would get him caught. Let's head to June 24th, 1998. A former mayoress of Hyde, a wealthy widow, a patient of Dr. Shipman, Kathleen Grundy, Kathleen Grundy dies suddenly at the age of 81. All who knew her, extremely surprised. Kathleen was active in good health, was a tireless worker for local charities until the literal day of her death. Her absence was noted when she failed to show at the Age Concern Club, a place where she helped serve meals to elderly pensioners. Because she was noted for her punctuality and reliability, when she doesn't show, her friends immediately suspect that something bad has happened. Then they go to her house to check on her and they find her lying on the sofa, fully dressed, totally dead. They immediately call her doctor, Freddie Shipman. He'd been to her house just a few hours earlier, was the last person to see her alive. He claimed the purpose of his visit had been to take blood samples for a study on aging. She wasn't even sick. He conveyed the news of her passing to her daughter, Angela Woodruff, telling her that her mother had simply died of old age, natural causes. Shipman also told Angela that no post-mortem would be required. He was confident after inspecting her body that she died naturally. No need to investigate. Angela had never thought of Dr. Shipman as anything but a good doctor, but despite his claim of natural causes, she was immediately suspicious. It did not make sense to her. Her mother had been found sitting in the sofa that no one had could ever remember her ever sitting in before. She had never sat on that sofa to their memory. She was also found facing away from the window in the front door when she was known to always face the window in the door. Whenever she sat down in that room, the room she was found dead in, her death just felt staged. It felt wrong. It just did not make sense to them. Uh, On July 1st, 1998, hundreds of mourners attend Mrs. Grundy's funeral at Hyde Chapel, Greater Manchester. Her family, you know, still found the circumstances of her death very troubling, but no one was ready to go to the police until her will was read. Solicitor Brian Burgess notified Angela of the existence of another will that Angela did not know about. 
a will that was very different than the will she had helped her mother write out 12 years earlier. The new will now excluded her and her family from her mother's inheritance and left everything to sweet old Mr. Harold Freddie Shipman. It read, I give all my estate, money and house to my doctor. My family are not in need and I want to reward him for all the care he has given me and the people of Hyde. Big time alarm bells are going off now. Shipman is just trying to give himself an inheritance valued at roughly 400,000 pounds. Angela, who was a lawyer herself and a very good one, her family, they felt this was absurdly uh, clumsy. This is an obvious forgery, obviously fake signature. Had Dr. Shipman just gotten cocky over the years? Did he think this, you know, shitty forgery would convince her family this was a real will? Was he so arrogant that he thought they were that stupid? Angela later said at Shipman's trial, my mother was a meticulously tidy person. The thought of her signing a document, which is so badly typed, didn't make any sense. The signature looked strange. It looked too big. The concept of mom signing the document, leaving everything to her doctor, was unbelievable. Initially, Angela wondered if Shipman was being framed somehow. But after interviewing witnesses to the signing of this will, she concluded that the doctor had murdered her mother for profit and forged the will. Paul Spencer, one of the attendants at Shipman's surgery, was one of the witnesses she interviewed. He thought he was signing a medical document when he was asked to put his signature on what would be Kathleen Grundy's falsified will. He did it without question. He even reported that it was folded over with just the space for the signature showing, so he couldn't even see the details of the will. And he said that Mrs. Uh, Grundy's signature was already on it when he signed it. This makes me think about all the things that I have signed with actually, without actually reading what I am signing. Like when I'm meeting with my accountant for taxes at the end of the year, or when Lindsay uh, had everything prepared uh, for my will recently, actually. 10 different pages, you know, it felt like uh, that I was supposed to sign, you know, and all these uh, other pages of just documents, you know, I'm in a hurry. I need to get back to work. I don't want to take literally three, four hours to carefully read everything. You know, I just trust the people around me that I'm signing what I'm supposed to be signing. You know, they're like, oh yeah, this is just for this. Okay, fine. Fucking sign. This is just for this. All right, sign. I get it, man. I could easily be duped into signing some bullshit too. Uh, Kathleen's daughter, Angela, alerts the local police. Detective Superintendent Bernard Postles quickly also thinks there's a real good chance that Fred killed Kathleen to take her money. Regarding the forged will, Postles would later say, you only have to look at it once and you start thinking it's like something off a John Bull printing press. You don't have to have 20 years as a detective to know it's fake. Maybe he thought he was being clever, an old lady, nobody around her. Look at it, it's a bit tacky. But everyone knew she was sharp as a tack. Maybe it was his arrogance. Shipman slipping. He's gotten away with shit for so long he thinks he can just do whatever he wants. Thinks he can uh, not only kill off elderly patients now but also sign over their estates to himself. And then while the local authorities already have their eyeballs on Freddie, Right, but they don't have maybe quite enough to charge him yet. A local taxi driver named John Shaw shows up out of nowhere, gives the police more incriminating information about Shipman. He's been noticing a pattern with some of his customers over several years. Over 20 of them had died right after being seen by Dr. Death. Mr. Shaw had been working locally as a taxi driver since 1988. He'd driven numerous Shipman patients to his office. He'd later say, they became my friends. Then relatives would ring me and say, don't pick up my mom, she's dead. I got to a strange way of thinking. I was asking, who was this doctor? Mr. Shaw said that he became concerned back in March, 1995, after the death of Netta Ashcroft. He said he began to see a pattern emerging. After another patient, Millicent Garside, died in October, 1996, Mr. Shaw was told by her son, Keith, that Shipman had just given her an injection. He would later say, I wanted to say he's murdered your mom, but he felt that he wouldn't be believed and his wife, Kathleen, advised him to keep quiet in case he was wrong and they got sued. 
Uh, they said, the fact that Shipman was a much well-respected figure in the community who seemed to be popular and well-liked by his patients made it difficult to express my concerns publicly. I couldn't believe what my suspicions were. They were so fantastic that I couldn't grasp what my mind was telling me, which I get, right? That's hard to believe. Some random doctor just off on his patients. Then after Mr. Shaw hears about the Grundy investigation, he and his wife feel it's time to contact authorities. The information he's able to provide authorities get the ball rolling on the idea that the Grundy murder was not a unique case in Shipman's career. Right? He'd been doing this for a while. Now the police are more than just a little suspicious about, uh, you know, Shipman. But they still don't have enough actual evidence, uh, you know, needed to charge him with murder. So to try and obtain that evidence, they decide to focus first on Catholic, Kathleen Grundy's murder. They need to conduct a postmortem on her body, assess her cause of death, which requires an exhumation order from the coroner. And to dig this poor lady back up, digging up a body like this is very rare, very rare occurrence for any British police force. It was the one, the, uh, the you know, uh, it was something that the greater Manchester police had not yet experienced. Detective Superintendent Postles later explained, we did not have one officer who had ever taken part in the exhumation. We asked the National Crime Squad for advice. Catherine, uh, Kathleen Grunny's grave would be the first to be opened, but it would not be the last. On August 1st, 1998, Kathleen's body was exhumed. Her tissue and hair samples were sent to different labs for analysis. Upon return, the data showed definite evidence for a morphine overdose. The postmortem showed that the morphine was or administered somewhere around three hours before her death, exactly when Dr. Death came to see her. The local authorities were actually surprised by how obviously Dr. Shipman had incriminated himself. A morphine overdose is really, really easy to determine. There are a number of drugs and poisons Shipman could have used that would have been much harder to detect. Uh, criminally, not smart for Freddie Boy to use morphine. Officer Postles thought for sure a doctor would have known that, would have known that morphine can remain in body tissue and bones for centuries. Postles later observed, I was surprised. I anticipated that I would have had difficulty if he gave them something in the way of poison lost in background substance. Uh, he gave insulin, or he used insulin as an example, you know, which produces, uh, the body produces naturally. Uh, it was an unexpected bonus once I had checked that Kathleen Grundy did not take it herself. I love these English quotes, by the way. Same language that we speak here in America, but so different. Different word meanings, different vocabulary choices, different sentence structure. It's great. Kathleen did not take herself. I would have had difficulty had he given her something in the way of poison lost in background substance. And that's not something you say in America. Lost in background substance. I'd probably say something like, it was obvious that Kathy didn't kill herself. I'm glad she made it easy for us to tell to be poisoned with. You know, it's like more like plain. Flowery, more flowery, a lot of uh, uh, the language that the uh, British use. Uh, a month later on September 7th, Shipman is arrested and charged with Mrs. Grundy's murder after uh, going to the local Ashton Underline police station for an interview. He denies the accusations against him. Of course he does. Uh, he makes the ridiculous bullshit claim that Kathleen Grundy Again, who was 81 years old, was a heroin junkie, essentially. And then he, uh, you know, he took her morphine as a result of her, her addiction. You know, if anything, he was complicit in enabling an octogenarian to continue to abuse an opioid. He showed the police records on his computer trying to prove his case, but he wasn't able to fool the police with falsified records a second time. They were able to determine that this time, the comments and records he'd shown them had been altered after her death. The police then raided the doctor's home and offices before he could talk Primrose or some other employee into destroying the records he'd kept for all his other patients. During the raid, police find the typewriter used to type the bogus will he'd used with, uh, with Kathleen. Shipman told them the improbable tale of how Mrs. Grundy sometimes borrowed his typewriter 
She must have borrowed it to write out her own will. Uh Uh-huh. Forensic scientists later confirmed this machine had been used to type numerous other counterfeit and fraudulent documents. Searching Shipman's house yielded additional altered medical records. Uh, They found some mysterious jewelry. And weirdly, his house was also filthy, which they found uh, to be strange for a doctor's home. The Shipman home was littered with filthy clothes, old newspaper clippings. It was nothing short of unsanitary. Uh, The more records the police found, the more apparent it was to them that the case would extend further than the single death in question. The taxi driver was right. He had been killing patients for years. Priority was given to the deaths that would be most productive to investigate, namely victims who had not been cremated and who had died directly following a home visit by Shipman. Dr. Death had urged families to cremate their relatives in a large number of the cases, stressing that no further investigation of their deaths was necessary, even in instances when these relatives had died of causes previously unknown to the families. In situations where they did raise questions, Shipman would provide fake medical records to corroborate the cause of death he'd pronounced. Because of all the cremations, you know, we'll never know exactly how many people he killed. Uh, police determined that in many cases of murder, he'd altered computer records again to make everything match within hours of the patient's death. Often immediately after killing somebody, he'd race back to his office and adjust those records. In the case of 82-year-old Kathleen Grundy, he reinforced his later statement that she was a morphine junkie by inventing and backdating several entries and writing about how, you know, that she was uh, definitely addicted. On September 8th, 1998, Shipman makes the first of many appearances before time, uh, Tameside Magistrates Court in Ashton Online, Ashton Underline, excuse me, charged with murdering Mrs. Grundy and forging her will. He's refused bail. Weeks later, a series of bodies, all Shipman's victims, would also be exhumed. On October 7th, Shipman appears in court again and is charged with three additional murders after examinations of their bodies combined with altered medical records made it apparent he had also given them lethal injections of morphine. More bodies are exhumed in October and November. On November 11th, Shipman is charged with two additional murders. On December 3rd, charged with two more murders. More bodies exhumed in December. On February 2nd, 1999, Shipman is charged with seven additional murders. Six of these murder victims had actually been cremated, but they were still able to charge him because of all the altered medical history entries he'd made to their patient records. Fred didn't know uh, about how his hard drive worked. He didn't know that every time he altered these records on his computer, uh, that the phony alteration was documented to the second. They were able to see in numerous cases that he again run back to his office immediately after they died a sudden unexpected death and then rewritten them a phony medical history. Despite all of the overwhelming evidence against him, Shipman continued to refuse to admit uh, to having done anything wrong. Here's a little bit of the transcript from an interrogation where Detective Constable Marie uh, Shitnitsky explains to Shipman that it is, ugh, sorry about that name, by the way. Oh, uh, it's actually Snit, Snit, uh, Sninsky. I don't know why. I love that I changed it to Shitsnitsky or something like that. It's Polish. Sninsky. Fucking Polish names. Um, he uh, explains to Shipman that it's obvious that he altered medical re- records, or she explains, excuse me, to cover up the murders. So Marie says, the levels were such that this woman actually died from toxicity of morphine, not as you wrongly diagnosed. In plain speaking, you murdered her. One feature of these statements from the family was that they couldn't believe their own mother had chest pains, angina, and hadn't been informed. And Harold says, by whom? By her. By her, thank you. They also found it hard to believe because she didn't have a history of chest complaints and heart disease and angina, did she, doctor? If it's written on the records, then she had the history. And therefore, the simple truth is you fabricated a history to cover what you've done. You murdered her. You made up a history of angina and chest pains so you could issue a death certificate and placate this poor woman's family, didn't you? No. 
We've got a statement from Detective Sergeant John Ashley, who works in the field of computers. He's made a thorough examination of your computer doctor and the medical records contained on it, and he's found that there is a number of entries that you have incorrectly placed on this record to falsely mislead and to indicate this woman had a history of angina and chest pains. What have you got to say about that, doctor? Nothing. Nothing. I wonder if he knows at this point that he's fucking done. He, he has to know, right? He's not an idiot. He has to know that he will never, ever be a free man again and that he's going to die in prison. Or does he somehow think that he'll still get out of it? If you look in cases like this, where, where the killer has a family, uh, they refuse to admit they're guilty, so at least they can hope that even if the rest of the world thinks they're guilty, at least their family might still believe they're innocent. I feel like they cling to that. And his family does still seem to think he's innocent. Uh, on October 5th, 1999, Shipman goes to trial at Preston Crown Court, charged with murdering 15 patients and forging Mrs. Grundy's will. Shipman's defense counsel, Nicola Davis, Davies, makes their case first. Primarily a medical lawyer, 46-year-old Ms. Davies uh, had mainly dealt with matters outside the criminal courts prior to Shipman's trial. She submits three requests to the court. First, she asks that the trial be halted. Uh-huh. Davies claims that Dr. Shipman will not be able to receive a fair trial because of the poor, inaccurate, and misleading media coverage around the case. For the better part of two days, she draws attention to a range of newspaper articles reporting on nearly 150 patients' cases, and she talks about the extensive media coverage of the exhumations. Second, Ms. Davies wants the court to hold three separate trials for Grundy and the other cases. She says the first trial should only be for the case of Kathleen Grundy. It should be separate because it alone has an alleged motive, greed. The second trial, she says, should involve only patients who had been buried because this was the only group where physical evidence of the cause of death, morphine poisoning, applies. The third trial, she believes, should cover those who are cremated as no physical evidence of death exists. The prosecutor count, uh, counters with an argument that because the cases are interrelated, trying them all together was important to present a more comprehensive picture to the juror of who Shipman is and why he kills. Ms. Davies then presents the defense's third application, one that stuns the court. She wants evidence referred to in Volume 8 to be disallowed. Volume 8 contains records dealing, uh, detailing how Shipman had accumulated morphine from 28 patients, many now deceased. It shows how the doctor continued prescribing for some after they had died and kept the drugs for his own purposes. Similarly, he had prescribed opiates for many still-living patients who never received strong painkillers, much less morphine, the defense didn't feel that Dr. Shipman's possible ongoing morphine addiction was relevant to his murder charges. After considering the defense's three applications, the court denies each one. All the evidence is going to be allowed. The trial is not going to be postponed and he's going to be tried for all the murders at once. A jury is quickly selected and the trial is underway. The prosecution would assert that Shipman had killed the 15 patients because he enjoyed exercising control over life and death they dismissed any claims that he had been acting compassionately as none of his 15 victims were actually suffering a terminal illness. Important note here. Uh, were some of the people he's believed to have killed suffering from terminal illnesses? Yes. Uh, initially, when I read about this guy, I thought a lot of them were. Turns out, no. Most of them were not. Uh, the 15 people he was initially charged with killing were not suffering from terminal illnesses. So he was definitely not some angel of mercy. He was the fucking grim reaper. Angela Woodruff, Kathleen Grundy's daughter, appears as the first witness for the prosecution. Her direct manner, account of her determination to get the truth and press the jury, and attempts uh, by Shipman's defense to undermine her were unsuccessful. 
She was an accomplished solicitor, accomplished lawyer. She knew how to handle herself in court. She had the truth on her side, and she was described to be as striking as her mother had been in life. Fashionably dressed in an expensive gray suit, understandably emotional, she appeared on the verge of breaking down throughout her long and arduous time in the witness box, explaining in great detail the police photographs of her house where her mom had lived so happily. She then told of the harrowing phone call from the Hyde police to inform her that her mother had died. Seeking clarification, she later had a conversation with Dr. Shipman. She said, exactly what he said was difficult to remember. It's very hazy because I was very, very upset. Dr. Shipman said he had seen my mother on the morning of her death. He had seen her at home. She couldn't remember why the doctor claimed to have been there. Speaking of the clumsy attempt made to fake the will, leaving everything to Shipman, she told of her mother's meticulous attention to detail, how doing everything neatly had always been her mother's way. This would later be apparent to everyone in the court when some of her mother's diary entries were read, entries where every detail of importance was meticulously recorded in perfect penmanship. Her mom was not the type of person to flippantly write, I gave all my estate money and house to my doctor. My family are not in need and I want to reward him for all the care he has given me and the people of Hyde. Angela went on to show how wealth or how healthy her 81-year-old mother had been, saying she was just amazing. We would walk five miles and come in and she would say, where's the ironing? We used to joke she was fitter than we were. I love this. How sad in the sense that she was murdered, obviously, but how inspiring that you can still live an active and vibrant life in your 80s. My grandpa Ward is 87. He's slowing down a bit for sure now. But even like two years ago, he could still outwalk both of his own daughters, my mom and my aunt. He still was doing stuff like climbing up onto the roof to repair some shingles and split firewood. Yeah, he was splitting firewood in the yard, not on the roof. That'd be extra fucking weird. If he was 85 years old, splitting firewood on the, on the roof. Kind of fucking awesome especially if he's wearing like a Rambo kind of head tie or something. Uh, this is a guy who never set foot in a gym in his life, never walked into a GNC, never drank a protein shake, never took any kind of fitness supplements. He just worked hard, stayed busy his whole life, you know, still stays busy. You know, not as busy, but still pretty busy. Exciting to think what is possible for us uh, now if we really take care of our bodies, work out, take advantage of modern supplements, nutrition. Never thought a, a time suck on Dr. Death would be motivating me to get back in the gym more and take better care of myself. But that's exactly what it's doing. Thank you, Casting Grundy, for living an inspirational life. In the ensuing cross-examination, the defense seemed intent on emphasizing Mrs. Woodruff's wealth, trying to prove that she didn't need her mother's money, so it wouldn't be that crazy for her mom to not give her the, the inheritance. Uh, Ms. Woodruff didn't hide the fact that she was doing very well. She said it was common knowledge that she and her husband, David, had inherited one million pounds from his dad, her father-in-law. She could also confirm that uh, she and her husband each earned sizable annual incomes, and she also said this had nothing to do with a will that clearly wasn't written by her mom. A subsequent attempt by the defense to show that Ms. Uh, uh, Woodruff's relationship with her mother had been unharmonious was totally shot down when the victim's writings and a host of witnesses were examined. Man, I know as a defense attorney, you have to do your best to prove your client didn't do what they're accused of doing, but this all seems so fucking slimy and gross to me. To try and prove that Angela didn't get along well with her mom, to try and prove that she didn't need the money, it feels so desperate, just lacking in class. I've said it before, I have good friends who have become defense attorneys and I'm glad they exist. I know it's an important job. They're great people. I'd hire them in a heartbeat if I ever need a defense attorney, but I could not be a defense attorney. Man, I, I could bust my ass and defend the shit out of someone if I truly believed they were innocent. But if I thought they were for sure guilty, oh, I would be the worst fucking attorney. I feel like I would try and fuck things up for them just enough to make sure that they lose, but not enough to let them have a mistrial down the road. Right, like, like maybe sneak the prosecution stuff, drop off an anonymous manila envelope full of damning evidence. 
tell them to look into things that my client has told me he's done that, you know, that they don't know about yet. Maybe, maybe tell my client to act in ways definitely not beneficial to their case. Hey, Freddie, I, I want you to make a lot of eye contact with the jurors, right? Really stare them down. You know, a lot of recent studies have shown that trying to physically intimidate jurors is a great way to make them think that you're innocent. When the, when the judge isn't looking, I want you to look at the jurors and I, and I want you to just kind of run your finger across your throat, right? That, that classic, you're going to fucking die message, right? Or maybe make your hand into like a gun and just pretend to kind of shoot them sometimes too, okay? Uh, early in the trial, a government pathologist uh, leads the court through gruesome post-mortem findings where morphine toxicity is found to be the cause of death over and over again. Uh, the will quickly proven to be fake in court as well. The fingerprint analysis of the forged will shows that Kathleen Grundy had never even touched it. Her signature was dismissed quickly by a handwriting expert as being in crude, obvious forgery. So dumb, Shipman really fucked up with this will, right? How did he think he was going to get away with that? Especially when her daughter was a successful attorney. He got cocky, been getting away with stuff for too long. Uh, police computer analysis testifies that Shipman had definitely altered his computer records to create symptoms that his dead patients never had. In many cases, again, within hours of their deaths. As the trial progressed onto other victims and the counts of their relatives, a clear and consistent pattern of behavior began to emerge around Shipman. He continually displayed a lack of compassion, disregard for the wishes of attending relatives, and a reluctance to attempt to revive his patients, which is super weird. Numerous times it was proven he would pretend to call an ambulance in the presence of relatives and then pretend to cancel the call when the patient had died. Telephone records showed he never made the calls. He was just pretending to speak to dispatchers in front of the patient's relatives when in reality it was just static on the other end of the line. All right, he developed this entire elaborate scheme to get away with killing over and over again. And prior to the very end with no financial reward, at least not a huge one. We will find out in a bit he might have been taken or definitely was taken in some cases the odd piece of jewelry. Uh, no sexual motivation though. I mean, it's like he just got off on playing God or, or he was reenacting his mother's death in some way. Uh, finally, evidence of his drug hoarding is introduced with false uh, prescribing to patients who didn't require morphine, over-prescribing to others who did, as well as proof of his visits to the homes of the recently deceased to collect unused drug supplies for disposal, quote unquote, I mean, is this why he did it? Maybe it was part of the reason to feed his own morphine habit. In the second week of his trial, Shipman's former staff and colleagues uh, were called in to be character witnesses. District nurse Marion Gilchrist took the oath and immediately burst into tears. Regaining her composure, she told how Shipman had reacted when he realized he would be arrested at any moment. The doctor had broken down and he said, oh, I'll read thrillers and on the evidence they have, I will be found guilty. And the nurse said uh, she took it as black humor when he also said, the only thing I did wrong was not have a cremated. If I'd had a cremated, I wouldn't have all this trouble. Another patient whose statement was read out in court described Shipman's feelings on Grundy's will when he told her, if I could bring him back, I, I would say, look at all the trouble it's caused. I was going to say I didn't want the money, but because of all this trouble, I, I will have it. He claimed he would use most of her money for philanthropic causes. He would never get the chance to do so. Uh, the last part of the Grundy case heard evidence from medical peer, Dr. John Grenville, Analyzing Shipman's medical notes, he spoke of how he would have behaved very differently under the same circumstances. Speaking about how Dr. Shipman had quickly pronounced Kathleen Grundy dead, he said, I would examine the body carefully to ensure death had occurred. If I found no pulse at the neck, I would look for a more central point. Grenville claimed he would have attempted to revive her, which was standard medical practice. So now the jurors are a form of very, you know, are a clear picture of a cold and calculated defendant. This image would only intensify in the grueling weeks of trial ahead. The prosecution's case for Shipman becoming a serial killer 
or being a serial killer was gaining uh, momentum. Uh, you know, as as tip as is typical when evidence follows a set pattern over and over in a trial. Although the Kathleen Grundy case had taken over a week, the uh, other cases to follow, the other murder cases, would progress much more quickly. Over and over, jurors would hear uh, the same pattern. Shipman running the same ambulance telephone scam in front of grieving relatives. Uh, one sad example of this ruse involved a vibrant 77-year-old named Lizzie Adams. Lizzie loved dancing with her dance partner, William Catlow. She played Ginger Rod Rogers to his Fred Astaire, and William had dropped in to visit Lizzie the day she died. When he arrived, he found Shipman examining her uh, and uh, her impressive and expensive collection of porcelain and crystal. In the next room, Lizzie lay dying. Catlow told the court, I just burst past him. She felt warm. I said, I can feel her pulse. Shipman said, no, that's yours. I will cancel the ambulance. And then telephone records again proved that Shipman, you know, never called anybody. What a piece of shit, man. How sad that this poor man, you know, for him to, to know now that he was right, that his dance partner was still alive when he examined her, that her doctor did kill her right in front of him, essentially, and tricked him into helping not save her. In another case, that of 64-year-old Nora Nuttall, her son Anthony told uh, how he had left his mother alone for just 20 minutes. He returned to find Dr. Shipman leaving their house. He thought this was odd because his mom had you know, never said he was coming over. She didn't appear to even be ill. I asked him what was wrong. He said, I have rung an ambulance for her. I ran in. She looked like she was asleep in the chair. I took her uh, by the hands and shook her saying, mom, mom, shortly after Shipman merely touched her neck. Just like barely touched her neck and told the son, sorry, she is gone. Nora Nuttall's sister went to Shipman's office to examine the dead woman's records. She wanted details of her sister's death. Annoyed, Shipman addressed his staff. I knew it would happen. I told you it would happen. Quickly, he fabricated the story of how Nora had called his office to say she was ill. Shipman then claimed he had been paged and just happened to be nearby. When telephone records proved him wrong, Shipman quickly fabricated a new story. Unreal how he didn't get caught uh, for this, for this you know, case. He didn't get caught for telling some shitty lies, but he would get caught for his lie about Kathleen Grundy. Luckily, uh, if you remember, he had said that his reason for visiting his last victim, Kathleen Grundy, was allegedly to collect blood samples for a study on aging. This is brought up, of course, in court. So where were these blood samples? The prosecution asked. He said he'd sent them off for analysis. But then the prosecution proved that there was no study. He made it all up. So where were the samples? Now he says he left the samples under a pile of notes for a uh, for sure real study that the prosecution, they just, they just didn't know about. All right, it's a study that who, you know, the head researchers were doctors with names. He just couldn't quite remember, but it was definitely real. And, and you know, now that he really thinks about it, he hadn't sent the samples anywhere. He said that by the time he found them under his notes where he had forgotten them, they were no longer useful. So, you know, he, he threw them away. And gosh dang, he just, you know, oh my heck, this is just coming up now. With each new lie, Shipman's looking more and more like a fucking dipshit. Right? His credibility is plummeting with the jury. He's making this a very easy case for the prosecution. To go along with being a murderer, the prosecution also showcases how big of an asshole he was. Uh, a line of witnesses talk about Shipman's lack of compassion. Lorry driver Albert Lilly broke down as he recalled the way Shipman announced the death of his wife, 59-year-old Jean, uh, Jean Lilly. He said, I've been with your wife for quite a while now, trying to persuade her to go to the hospital, but she won't go. I was going to come home later and have a word with you and your wife, and I was too late. And he says, well, what do you mean too late? And then the doctor Shipman said, you, you are not listening to me carefully. And then he says that Shipman seemed to take great pleasure in forcing him to guess that his beloved wife had just died. 
He played this strange guessing game with Winnie Mellor's relatives as well. Winnie was a healthy, outgoing 73-year-old who still played football with her grandchildren. Excited, you know, uh, about, and by the way, this is uh, English football. American listeners are talking about soccer here. She wasn't, you know, fucking tackling and uh, throwing the pigskin around. But excited about a planned trip to the Holy Land, she too died uh, suddenly, directly following a Shipman visit. When Shipman called her daughter Kathleen, he was deliberately obtuse, forcing her to guess how her mother had died. He said, did you realize that your mother has been suffering from chest pains? And I said, no. He said, she called this morning. I came to see her and she refused treatment. And she, this is all going on in court. And so she, so, so she says, well, I'll, I'll be up there as soon as I can. And he says, no, there's no need for that. So I said, has she gone to hospital? And he says, there's no point in sending her to hospital. And then I just went silent, she says, and then he didn't say anything. And then I just realized what he was not saying. And I said, do you mean my mother's dead? And he says, I see you understand. What a fucking weirdo. Is that part of why he was doing this? Did he like to see others feel the pain he felt when his mom died or something? What a sick fuck. He just like to toy with people. Hello, Kathleen. Do you have a moment to speak about your mom, Winnie? Yes, of course, Dr. Shipman. You saw her earlier today. Yes, I did, Kathleen. Yes, I, yes, I did. We had, we had a lovely visit. So she, she's feeling better then? Yes, it's quite better. She is no longer experiencing any pain. Well, that is great news, Dr. Shipman. She's had a, such a terrible cough. I, I, I know as it was really starting to hurt her chest. I look forward to swinging by her place later today and talking to her. I don't think she'll have much to say, Kathleen. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry? Well, she's grown rather quiet, if you, if you catch my meaning. I, I'm, I'm afraid I don't, Dr. Shipman. Is, is she tired? Is she taking a nap? If by nap you mean dirt nap, then, well, yes, you're a clever girl. You'll figure it all out. D did you just say my mother's taking a dirt nap, Dr. Shipman? Yes, but I, I, I misspoke. She is quite above ground, for now. Sorry to alarm you. So, so she's okay then? Yeah, she's quite peaceful. I think I'll call her now, Dr. Shipman. She won't answer. How do you know that? I suppose I don't. I guess a miracle could happen. I guess there's always a small possibility of becoming a zombie or something. Dr. Shipman, I'm heading to my mother's right now to check it. Your strange talk is worrying me. Very well then. If you're in a mood for a stiff company, you'll find it. Please let me know if she is somehow no longer dead. Uh, talk to you soon. Uh, thank you, Kathleen. Shipman was such a bastard, man. His rudeness to a neighbor, Glory Ellis helped convict him uh, of the murder of Winnie Miller. Gloria had witnessed Shipman's visit to Winnie just hours before her death. He was to return later as Detective Chief Inspector Mike Williams explained. A neighbor at tea time gets a knock on the door from Dr. Shipman saying he's come to see Winfred Miller. He can see her in a chair and he thinks she's dead. They go into the house and again, they find Winfred Miller dead in a chair. When the neighbor Gloria asks, but you were here before, weren't you? Shipman does not answer. When she uh, asks, has Gloria had a stroke? Shipman quickly becomes irritated and then insults her saying, you stupid girl. Far from stupid, this neighbor knew to the minute the time Shipman had arrived and left and was happy to share that information with the jury. See, like he's such an asshole. Like she had seen this guy come before, then leave, then come back to her house and be like, hey, can you let me in this house? And she's like, what the fuck are you talking about? I just saw you go in there. No, no, I didn't. That, that never happened. No, no, you're quite wrong. Stupid girl. In another example of Shipman's heartless behavior, the killer ridicules dead Ivy Lomas. One of 15 deaths Shipman was charged with, only Ms. Lomas occurred in his office. A detective Sergeant Philip Reed, a constable at the time, told how he had gone to the doctor's office to locate Ivy's next of kin. And he would later recall his, his bizarre encounter with Shipman, saying he was laughing. He said he considered her such a nuisance that he was having part of the seating area permanently reserved for Ivy with a plaque to the effect, seat permanently reserved for Ivy Lomas. Even worse, Shipman told the officer that as he left the room, Ivy could have taken her last breath. 
and yet he made no effort to resuscitate the woman. Instead, he left her alone while he saw other patients. A medical expert for the prosecution, Dr. Grenville, told the court, this was a medical emergency. I would have given my entire attention to this particular patient. But the 63-year-old Ivy uh, would have been past resuscitation at this point because, you know, Shipman had murdered her with morphine. During the trial, Shipman repeatedly claimed he never carried morphine. Therefore, he could not have killed any of his patients with it. This assertion became the cornerstone of his defense. But then the family of victim Molly Dudley disproved this assertion. Daughter-in-law Joyce Dudley received a call from Shipman telling her, I'm afraid your mother-in-law has only got about half an hour left to live. Molly was dead by the time her son Jeffrey and wife arrived. Shipman told them she had died from a heart attack. Joyce Dudley stated, and this is when he said to me and to Jeff that he had, quote, given her a shot of morphine for the pain. So this proves that Dr. Shipman did in fact carry morphine. Just how he amassed enough of the drug to kill so many patients was also revealed during the trial. He once prescribed 2,000 milligrams of morphine to a patient named Frank Compton who had prostate cancer. Although Mr. Compton was not in pain, Shipman said he wanted to have it on hand for him in case pain developed later. He said the patient had told him he didn't want to be a drug addict, so he broke you know, the capsules of morphine, put them in the rubbish, but no one saw him do this. Shipman said he talked more to Mr. Compton, Compton, excuse me, about the morphine, and he agreed to keep some pills in his house just in case he were to need them. So Shipman said he got them another supply. Mr. Crompton died before Shipman's trial, and it was impossible to prove Shipman had confiscated both batches, but it didn't look good. And it's believed he did this sort of thing over and over. He'd write out morphine prescriptions for patients who never knew he had done so, and then would just keep the drug for himself. Shipman's staff also told the court about how he had tried explaining away some missing morphine with the excuse that he had given it to a colleague who'd once loaned him some for a prior patient emergency. One man who narrowly, narrowly escaped an overdose from Dr. Death was Jim King. His testimony would prove further that Shipman was routinely overdosing his patients with morphine. In 1996, Jim had been incorrectly diagnosed as having cancer and Shipman began treating him with massive doses of morphine. Jim told the court how he kept saying, you can take as much morphine as you wish because of course it didn't really matter. You were dying anyway. When Jim's condition worsened, Shipman made a house call. He diagnosed Jim as having pneumonia, said he needed to be given an injection. Jim and his wife were a bit hesitant to accept this injection, mostly because both King's aunt and his father had recently died following injections from Shipman. Jim's wife recalled how the doctor asked me if I wanted to help give him the injection. I said, no. I said, can we write out a prescription for him? He kept being persistent about it. He wanted to give him the injection. I kept telling him, no, no, I don't want it. He was a bit arrogant about it, had a snotty attitude towards me about it. The Kings learned later that Shipman had in fact definitely murdered his dad and aunt and probably was going to murder him at that point. Mr. Justice Forbes, the judge presiding over Shipman's trial, took uh, two weeks to meticulously dissect all the evidence heard by the jury. He urged caution Noting that no witness had actually seen Shipman kill anyone, he also urged the jurors to uh, use common sense in arriving at their verdict. On January 31st, he told them, in part, the allegations could not be more serious. A doctor accused of murdering 15 patients. You will have heard evidence which may, be, which may have aroused feelings of anger, strong disapproval, disgust, profound dismay, or deep sympathy. But then on January 31st, uh, you know, 2000, the foreman declared the jury had reached, you know, quickly a unanimous decision regarding the charges against Dr. Harold Freddie Shipman. They found him guilty of everything he'd been charged with. Guilty on 15 counts of murder, guilty on the count of forgery. The disgraced doctor stood motionless, showed no sign of emotion as he heard jurors read the verdict. I'm guessing, you know, he wasn't that surprised. His wife, Primrose, didn't, uh, also didn't seem surprised. 
Wearing black, Primrose also remained emotionless. Two of her sons, one beside her and the other seated behind her, did break down and cry. Their daughter and third son were not in court the day the verdict was read. His sentence was read almost immediately after his guilty verdict. Mr. Justice Forbes addressed Shipman saying, you have finally been brought to justice by the verdict of this jury. I have no doubt whatsoever these are true verdicts. The time has now come for me to pass sentence upon you for these wicked, wicked crimes. Each of your victims was your patient. You murdered each and every one of your victims by a calculated and cold-blooded perversion of your medical skills for your own evil and wicked purposes. You took advantage of and grossly abused their trust. You were, after all, each victim's doctor. I have little doubt that each of your victims smiled and thanked you as she submitted to your deadly ministrations. Ah, uh, yeah. When all of his patients received their deadly dose of morphine, man, they thought they were being given medicine. How sad is that? When they grew sleepy, they probably thought they were going to wake up, you know, soon, feeling much better, and then they never woke up. The judge gave Shipman a life sentence for each and every murder conviction, 15 life sentences, an additional four-year sentence for forgery. He broke with English court tradition that usually involves writing to the home secretary about his recommendations on the length of the sentence, saying, in the ordinary way, I would not do this in the open court, but in your case, I am satisfied. Justice demands that I make my views known at the conclusion of this trial. My recommendation will be that you spend the remainder of your days in prison. 15 murders had been dealt with and the 57-day trial was over, but the true extent of how many patients Shipman killed was still being revealed. Shipman consistently denied his guilt, disputing scientific evidence against him. He never made any statements about his actions, never cooperated with anyone for any reason during this trial, during the investigation before it, during his incarceration afterwards. His wife, Primrose, apparently was in denial about his crimes. Soon after the verdict was read, many other additional cases of murders were uncovered, but not pursued. Authorities concluded it would be hard to have a fair trial in view of the enormous publicity surrounding the original trial. Also, given the sentences from the first trial, a further trial was just unnecessary. He wasn't ever going to get out of prison. But authorities did want to know for certain how many other patients had been killed. So on February 1st, 2000, Health Secretary Alan Milburn announces an inquiry into the circumstances surrounding additional murder possibilities. A clinical audit is conducted by Professor Richard Baker of the University of Leicester, or Leicester examined, uh, examining the number and pattern of deaths in Harold Shipman's practice and comparing them with those of other practitioners. He finds that rates of death amongst his elderly patients were significantly higher, two and a half times as high, clustered at certain times of day, and that Shipman was in attendance in a very disproportionately high number of cases of sudden patient death. The audit go on, goes on to estimate that he was very likely responsible for the deaths of at least 236 patients over a 24-year period. In February of 2000, police revealed that they're investigating Dr. Shipman's role in an additional 175 deaths. However, they, again, they say there will be no further murder charges. A report into Shipman's activities submitted in July of 2002 concludes that he had killed at least 215 of his patients between 1975 and 1998. Dame Janet Smith, the judge who submitted the report, admitted that many more suspicious deaths could, be, could not be definitively ascribed to him, but he probably killed them too. Altogether, foul play is suspected in 466 cases. Uh, Dame, by the way, in this context, is the female equivalent of sir in England. Doesn't mean uh, uh, someone is always the female equivalent of a knight, but it can. There's the knighthood and there is the damehood. Uh, of Shipman's 215 known victims, 171 were women, 44 were men. The oldest was a 93-year-old woman, the youngest a 47-year-old man, right? This doesn't count the four-year-old girl that may have been killed by him or who may have been killed by him as well. 
Uh, the commission further speculated that Shipman might have become addicted to killing. A year and a half later, Shipman is found hanging in his cell in Wakefield Prison, 6.20 a.m., January 13, 2004. He's pronounced dead around two hours later. He committed suicide a day before his 58th birthday. Shipman knew he was under hourly surveillance. He knew he only needed four minutes to finish himself off. A prison service statement indicated that Shipman had hanged himself from the window bars of his cell using bedsheets. And the people of England rejoiced. Various British tabloids expressed joy at his suicide, encouraged other serial killers to follow his example. The Sun ran a celebratory front page headline that says, uh, ship, ship, hooray. Fucking love it. Love British humor. Uh, so dark and honest. Yeah, good riddance. Fuck that piece of trash. Uh, Shipman's motivation for suicide seems to have been financial. He had reportedly told his probation officer that he was considering suicide so that his widow would receive a National Health Service and NHS pension and a lump sum, money she could definitely use since he had been stripped of his uh, doctor's pension. Primrose did receive a full NHS pension after he died, which she would not have received if he had died after the age of 60. So maybe his final act, I guess, was one of compassion for his wife. Uh, it might have also been a fuck you to authorities. They'd sentenced him to life in prison, but now he was going to decide that he wasn't going to live that long. FBI profiler John Douglas asserts that serial killers are usually obsessed with manipulation and control. Killing themselves in police custody or committing suicide by cop uh, is often a final act of control. Uh, Shipman also may have killed himself over a guilty conscience. Shortly before his death, Shipman had refused to take part in counseling courses, which would have encouraged him to uh, confess his guilt so that victims' families could get closure. He refused to cooperate. And this refusal led to privileges, including the opportunity to telephone his wife, being removed. Those privileges were returned the week before the suicide, suicide. And when he talked to Primrose for his, uh, you know, the final time, it seems as if she was wanting him to confess. Primrose, who had consistently believed that Shipman was innocent, uh, seems to have begun to suspect his guilt right before he died. According to Tony Fleming, Shipman's ex-cellmate, Primrose had, uh, you know, not only spoken with him before he died and, and had some questions, she also had recently written a letter to her husband urging him to tell me everything, no matter what. Uh, the year after he died, in 2005, it came to light that Shipman had stolen from more than just his final victim as well. Uh, over 10,000 pounds worth of jewelry was found in his garage in 1998. And in March 2005, with Primrose Shipman uh, pressing for it to be returned to her, police wrote to the families of Shipman's victims, asking them to identify the jewelry. 66 pieces ended up being returned to Primrose. 33 pieces, which she confirmed were not hers, were auctioned. So it looks like he took at least 33 pieces of jewelry. The proceeds of the auction went to the Tamside Victim Support Group. Uh, the only piece actually returned to a murdered patient's family was a platinum diamond ring, for which the family was able to provide a photograph as proof of ownership. Was he, taking, was he taking little trophies of his kills? I don't know. Uh, then on July tw uh, 30th, 2005, a memorial garden to Shipman's victims called the Garden of Tranquility opened at Hyde Park in London. And that little addendum takes us out of this time suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. All right, so now we know what this dude did. But what about the why? The motives behind his crimes always uh, have remained somewhat unclear, right? There was no signs of violence. Again, no sexual overtones, no known motive, except for the one occasional, you know, except for the one exception, excuse me, of the will, you know, no smoking gun. I mean, sure, he took some jewelry, but it didn't seem like he was selling it to fund some kind of lavish lifestyle. Money doesn't seem to have been his primary motivation. Uh, also, serial killers often like to toy with their victims to reinforce their self-portrait of power before they strike, but Shipman's victims seem to have died peacefully. 
in surroundings where they felt safe and comfortable at home. He didn't seem to have toyed with them, so that wasn't his main motivation. Some have suggested that he was uh, practicing euthanasia and eliminating older people under the guise of doing it for the greater good. Perhaps he felt elderly were a burden on the healthcare system, but if that's true, why were his victims uh, generally women? Some think he derived pleasure from the fact that as a doctor, he had the power to grant someone either life or death, and his killings were expressing that power. Uh, some think he, maybe he was just insane, right? Uh, he didn't come across, though, as mentally unstable to his family or to his coworkers. When he wasn't killing patients, he was, by all accounts, you know, a skilled doctor right up until the end. Was he doing some kind of strange research? Was he experimenting around with the effects of morphine? Probably not. This is just something that gets brought up when people speculate about his motives, but no one has ever found any documents relating to any clandestine study he may have been conducting. Did he see himself as some kind of death angel, some kind of bringer of dignified, pain-free medical death? Or as South Manchester coroner John Pollard speculated, did Shipman, quote, simply enjoy viewing the process of dying and enjoyed feeling the control over life and death? That one seems pretty likely. I think it's all related to his mom. Right? Some believe that he was somehow avenging the death of his mother over and over, replaying his mother's death scene over and over for some kind of masochistic reason. It seems beyond coincidental to me that the guy who spent so much time with his mom while she was dying during his identity-forming teen years, a woman whose only physical comfort in the end came from morphine, would then go on to both become addicted to morphine and also use morphine to kill other mothers. His mother's final moments were spent with her doctor, having a cup of tea, getting a shot of morphine, and then he re recreates a scene. Dr. Shipman, you know, giving his patients a cup of tea in many cases. Now he's the doctor sitting by them. Now he's giving them a shot of morphine in their final moments. Maybe his mom's death just fucked his brain up in a way we'll never fully understand, right? In a way you can't understand unless it happened to you. Too bad he didn't get some counseling after her death. Maybe he could have worked through some shit and, you know, not killed a whole bunch of grandmas and grandpas. We will likely never know why he did what he did. But before we bounce out of this episode, we can at least check in with the idiots of the internet and find out, you know, what they think about Dr. Harold Freddie Shipman. Idiots of the internet. I found a video called Dr. Death, Britain's Biggest Serial Killer, Crime Documentary Real Stories, published by the Real Stories YouTube channel. It's a documentary just over 47 minutes long that walks you through the essentials of Shipman's story, the essentials that you just heard, has over a million views, there's almost uh, 1,400 comments underneath it. User one ring to rule them all posts, killing heaps and heaps of old ladies. Nobody cares enough. But don't dare touch the inheritance. That is utterly sad about this case. Uh, good point, one ring. That is truly tragic. But I think it under, it's, it's understandable. Like he chose his victims carefully. And had others gone to the police early on, they probably wouldn't have been taken seriously because he didn't have an obvious motive. Shibben is such an odd killer that way. His victims didn't look like they'd been obviously murdered. Despite the police being suspicious of him towards the end, he may have been able to keep on killing for a long time had he not overreached and tried to snag that inheritance. That inheritance gave him motive now in law enforcement's eyes to kill somebody, which is why that you know was taken more seriously than, than previous cases. Uh, user, generally user generally interested. All right, little little silliness there, generally interested. Uh, makes a truly idiotic post writing, Stop believing in respectability. It's a mask as often as virtue. Uh, and this is talking about the respectability of him being a doctor. Uh, way to overcorrect, generally. One doctor has proven to be a murderous monster. Now you're ready to stop believing in the seemingly virtuous and respectable profession in general. That's a tad bit illogical. A little bit of the uh, throwing the baby out with the bathwater there. 
Uh, there are 68 likes for this comment and zero dislikes, which is sad. Yeah, yeah, people in quote-unquote uh, respectable professions, such as doctors, can be horrible. But to think many or most are horrible is ludicrous. Why would somebody want to become a doctor? Outside of making a good living, I'm guessing it's because they want to help people. It's a profession that draws good people to it, right? It's a profession based on helping, on saving. Uh, that's not going to draw a, a, a lot of, you know, people who want to hurt people. Yeah, it's going to draw the occasional person who wants to play God, I guess, but that's got to be a very small percentage. Not trusting doctors in general because of this one story is crazy. The reason the story gets a lot of press in England, the reason it's gotten, you know, got a lot of press around the world is because it's atypical, not typical. Uh, Slayenge artist uh, brings up an interesting point, writing, you sure he didn't kill his mom? Uh, he was never suspected of that, but what if he did kill her? I mean, he knew she was dying anyway. He hated seeing her in pain. He was watching a doctor give her morphine. What if he snuck some morphine from that doctor's bag, right? Gave her that final shot? Probably not. It doesn't come up in any investigation of him. But considering what he went on to do, it does make me pause, pause and think, I don't know, I don't know. maybe. Uh, Dr. Misuki Ataki posts, I know his name is Shipman, but throughout the entire documentary, all I heard was Shipman, fitting. Uh, nice, it is fitting. I can't believe I never thought of that. He was a Shipman. He was a Shipman. Uh, Eric Siggins cracked me up posting, I was watching this on 0.75 speed and was like, why are all these people so goddamn calm? And then Eitman Katerin posts the perfect reply, too much morphine. Well done. Well done, you two. Well done. Uh, user Biggs posts something I just thought was odd, writing, that's excessive even for a serial killer. He is more like a medieval tyrant. Over 300 murders, absolute horror, sneaky creep doctor. I, I just love how Biggs feels that 300 murders is excessive, which could be read as implying that, you know, like a more reasonable number for a serial killer is okay. It's like, I, I mean, 30 murders I get. That's normal. I get it. You're killing people. That's not good, but you're not killing that many people. You're not killing excessively. Uh, finally, uh, just like General Lee uh, earlier, user Rufus Byrne reads way too much into this isolated example writing, if he had not gone over the top and just killed a few each year, he would have gotten away with it. He should have not got greedy for money and no one would have ever known about it. I wonder how many doctors are doing this today, just killing a few each year. What the fuck are you talking about? Why would lots of other doctors just kill a few people each year? Right, just because that's like an easy number to get away with it. This makes me wonder if the only thing keeping Rufus from killing is concern over, you know, getting away with it. I'm going to guess very few doctors are, are just out there randomly killing a few patients a year just because they can get away with it. Right? Just for, just for funsies. It's just like not, nothing crazy. I just fucking, I just get rid of one or two. My least favorites. Uh, that being said, maybe it is a good idea to be super polite and courteous when inter interacting with your doctor. I mean, I mean, it probably is easier for them to kill you than it would be for someone else in your life. Uh, I'm not alone in worrying about Rufus. Uh, Syrian Fox replies to Rufus with his comment of, you come across like you would enjoy killing a few a year. Very weird, man. Very. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's happened. Luckily, I don't think the world is full of uh, very many Harold shipments. Thank God. Uh, that being said, if your Nana does die after a house call, maybe check and make sure that none of her jewelry has gone missing. And if some has, uh, maybe call the police. You might be dealing with the new Dr. Shitman. Idiots of the internet. 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 All right, a little wrap up here. Uh, hopefully my voice sounded a lot better today. I, I still have this the last touch, I'm hoping, of the snot nose from this, uh, from this cold. 
which makes pronouncing uh, harder. And, and you know, that's already a challenge for me. So I don't think it was too bad today. Hopefully it's better. Uh, well, I don't think we really have a, uh, you know, to worry about a lot more Dr. Shipments. His case did make it harder for another person like that to uh, kill and get away with it in the UK going forward. His murders led to some uh, reforms, which is, you know, which is good. It's nice when some uh, positive outcomes come from something so horrible. You know, new legislation was passed in the UK regarding the function and strength of the English General Medical Council because of Dr. Shipman. Uh, they made reforms as far as how Britain deals with sick doctors, the purpose and reliability of death certification. That process was changed. The monitoring of cremation cert certification was changed. The use of controlled drugs, the problem of isolated doctors, the value of clinical governance that was all looked at and reviewed, how to deal with whistleblowers, you know, changed the function of the coroner service, reviewed and changed. So a lot, a lot of positive changes made because of Dr. Shipman. Uh, Dr. Death got away with murder for at least 23 years. Man, hopefully no future doctor will, will ever break his grisly record. Unfortunate that he had never admitted to his killings, never told anyone exactly why he did it. In regards to motive, He's got to be the most mysterious killer we've covered so far here on Time Suck. Right? Like, why kill some elderly patients but not others? Was his choice in victims based primarily on thought uh, uh, of, you know, on who he thought he could get away with killing? Did he plan his killings in advance? Was it more impulsive? Did he look forward to them? Did he lay in bed at night next to Primrose and think to himself, mm, that was fun today. Ah, I feel better now that she's gone. I mean, just so weird. So weird to kill, kill people in a way that doesn't even hurt them people who have never done anything to you, people whose families don't even know they've been murdered. I feel like he would be the killer that would be the most confusing to all of the other killers we've covered here on Time Suck. What's this big deal with Dr. Death? He, he not even have soft shamecock. He not even wrestle. He not even hide in corner and jerk and bottle no one. What's his point? Why Why he people kill? This flat tire never even got out the cat nine tails. Never, never pressed out the hot apple cider. Never whipped up some semen fresh peanut butter. Never spanked a fat bottom till it bled. Like he doesn't even know the first thing about showbiz. And that's not how they do it in Hollywood. Why didn't he put at least one head on a stick? He was clearly upset about mother. He clearly had his apples all fired up and he didn't even fuck anyone's neck one time. He never even gave a damn to hoingy bangy. Never purchased a thingy dingy into holdsy woolsy. If you ended up killing over 200 people, you'd think at least one time growing up, he would have choked out a cat or pushed a neighbor kid off a roof or stuck his pecker in a chicken. Something that might make you say he might be a killer. He didn't even seem haunted, did he, Charles? He didn't even seem that demonic. Kind of boring, really. I wouldn't even waste 10 minutes having a drink with that stiff. Speaking of steps and drink shops, why don't you pour me a steel drink? This suck made me thirsty. Whee! Yeah, not even many of our past time suck characters can wrap their demented heads around Freddy. There's some odd meat sacks out there, and Harold Shivan was uh, one of the oddest. Let's take some last looks at Dr. Death in today's Top 5 Takeaways. Time suck. Top 5 Takeaways. Number one, Harold Freddie Shipman is the most prolific serial killer in British history and in, in, in the history of the world. We've said the numbers a bunch today convicted of killing 15 in court. Further investigations identified a total of 215 victims, an estimated total victim count of around 250, possibly much more. Around 80% of them were elderly women. You know, no one killed nanas and grandpappies like this dude did. And hopefully no one ever does again. Number two, dude loved morphine. Loved to use it on himself. Loved to finish other people off with it. So how does morphine make you high? 
Well, it causes drowsiness, mental clouding, kills your ability to feel pain, makes you feel euphoric. It can also cause mild hallucinations, make you feel really, really chill and relaxed. And too much of it makes you go to sleep and never wake up. That's how it kills you. Opioids kill by slowing your rate of breathing and depth of breathing to the point that you no longer are taking in enough oxygen to stay alive. Number three, Shipman's case changed the medical system in Britain in at least half a dozen ways. The silver lining of this episode is that this tragedy forced many positive changes. Number four, we will just never know exactly why Shipman did what he did because he never talked about it. Number five, new info until Shipman came along, Britain's worst serial killer was Victorian serial poisoner, Mary Ann Cotton, who murdered an estimated 21 people in the 1870s, perhaps more mainly by arsenic poisoning. Another poisoner, another member of the medical field. She was a nurse. She's also a housekeeper who was, still is, believed to be Britain's most prolific female serial killer. She was hanged for the poison of her stepson, Charles Edward Cotton. And of her estimated 21 victims, 11 were her own kids. She had 13 kids and is thought to have killed 11 of them. Also believed to have killed three out of four husbands to collect on insurance policies. Sounds like her and Belle Gunness would have gotten along well or at least understood each other. Should we suck Mary Cotton one of these days? Write in. Let us know. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Harold Shipman has been sucked. Dr. Death, weird serial killer in the sense that we know so little about his thoughts. Dude never gave us any info as to why he did what he did. But, uh, you know, if I had to be killed by one of the people we've covered, it's, it would be sure, uh, for sure be him, right? Morphine sounds like a lot better way to go, like a lot better way to go than to have been killed by Dahmer or Gacy or Bundy or any of, any of those other uh, fucking psychopaths we've covered. Big thanks to the Time Suck team. Thanks to Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Comins, High Priestess of the Suck, Harmony Camp. Reverend Dr. Paisley, the Bit Elixir app design crew, Logan and Kate at Spicy Club running badmagicmerch.com, and the script keeper, Zach Flannery. Uh, check out the Cult of the Curious private Facebook group if you want to make some new friends. Thank you to the Countess of the Cult, Liz Hernandez, for being a kick-ass administrator. Over 16,000 meat sacks in there to meet now. I was peeking in recently and just laughed my ass off at all the crazy fun posts. Uh, thanks to the all-seeing eyes of the cult helping Liz moderate the Facebook group. Ellie Darling, Robbie Erickson, Megan Howell, Danny Ryan, Jacob Carey, Juan Carlos Ramirez Darius. Also, the TimeSuck Discord channel via the TimeSuck app. Over 5,000 diehard suckers being goofy over there. Uh, thanks to Beef Suck, Beefsteak for all you do in Discord. Go Beef Suck. It's kind of a fun one, too. Uh, next week, fresh on the heels of the polarizing expiration of the Ruby Ridge standoff, uh, going to look into the Oklahoma City bombing. 1995, a truck packed with explosives detonated on April 19th, 1995 outside the Alfred P. Murrow Federal Building in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, leaving 168 people dead, hundreds more injured. The blast was set off by anti-government militant Timothy McVeigh, who in 2001 was executed for his crimes. His co-conspirator, Terry Nichols, sentenced to life in prison. Until September 11th, 2001, the Oklahoma City bombing was the worst terrorist attack to ever take place on U.S. soil. Why did they do it? Who the hell was Timothy McVeigh? Who was Terry Nichols? Why did they want to attack their own government? I know almost nothing about their story. Looking forward to a lot of learning this coming week as we research it. Now let's check in on some updates from this past week's Ruby Ridge episode and other updates in today's Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. Today's first update comes in from Meat Sack Supreme Gary Phipps. Gary sent in this message via Patreon, intended for the secret suck and the space lizards, but I, I thought it would be best to share it here. Gary writes, Hail Suckmaster Supreme. 
Gare Bear here. Been listening for a little over a year now. Recently became a space lizard about a month or so ago. I also converted my two good buddies, Chris and Tyler, to becoming space lizards. Still working on my wife. She's on the fence. I'm a former U.S. Army combat paratrooper, current marketing manager, family man, and an avid libertarian gun rights advocate. Well, thank you, Gary, for your service. Uh, Gary continues. First off, I'd like to say that I love the shit out of Time Suck and you in general, not just because of the show and humor you pour into it, but because you're similar to me in the fact that you have a highly tuned bullshit detector. I feel like I can spot those types of people easily, and it gives me comfort that there are still people out there who can think critically and not just with emotion. However, my message today does involve some emotion on my part. I listened to the Ruby Ridge Time Suck on Monday, as I'm always excited to hear the newest Time Suck after I get off work on my hour drive home. I was excited when you said you were doing this subject last week. I've heard what others have said about Ruby Ridge, similarly to how people glorify Killdozer, and was excited to hear your non-biased views, as I've heard a lot from people who think he's a martyr of some kind, and I know that there's always two sides to a story. I agree with your views for the most of the part of the suck, and it's okay not to agree 100% on everything. This, this is not possible in any situation. However, I was a little disappointed with your views on the government and their overreach, and you were not alone there, Care. <laughs> a lot of people disagreed and were disappointed with my views on the, on the government's overreach in that situation. Uh, I don't want to misquote you or something uh, like that, so I'll spare my ramblings, but I did have one question for your, uh, given your take on Ruby Rich. You stated numerous times you own guns and like guns. You are also a family man. You've also said that you lean more libertarian at times as well. With all that being said, in the current gun debate climate in the U.S., with legislation infringing on gun rights every day in states all over the country, imagine if there was legislation passed stating that if you owned a firearm, whether it be an AR-15, shotgun, hunting rifle, or any of the above, you'd have to turn them in or become a felon or might have your guns confiscated. So my question to you is, where would you stand at that point? Would you say the government is in charge and we should listen to them and turn in our guns to the police? Uh, who would be tasked with confiscating them, or would you say, no, gun ownership is an American human right to defend myself, my property, my family, and resist said unconstitutional legislation? There are ramifications in either decision. Uh, I chose the latter. I'm very interested in what your point of view is, even if it's not showcased on the podcast. While you ponder your response, think of this quote from Ben Franklin. Those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. That's a great quote. Yes, I'm gonna, I will address this here on the podcast, Gary. If, if the government were to say, hand in all of our guns, I would absolutely support a mili militia uprising. I would not support handing in our guns. And I know many of you listening will disagree with me on this. Uh, Gary, I know you'll agree. I know, I know many won't. Uh, I've thought about this a lot, especially since I think it was the Branch Davidian Waco siege episode. You know, I, I do think an armed citizenry is the best way to keep a government in check. I was corrected in a previous view I had. Um... That, that when I said that, you know, simple rifles, even AR-15s would not stand up against the military might of the U.S. government. Uh, maybe I said that in the Branch Davidian episode, or maybe it was in the uh, the, the, gut, the look on guns. Uh, that sucked a while back. But they uh, they actually would in an insurgency, similar to what we've seen in Vietnam and Afghanistan, other places. Uh, think about how the might of the U.S. military compared to ISIS, uh, and, and, and yet there, there is still ISIS, right? ISIS is still able to exist despite our military might. Uh, the Khmer Rouge episode made me think about the importance of gun ownership in America. How were the Khmer Rouge able to be uh, so easily pushed around or how were they able to, you know, so easily push around a lot of Cambodian citizens? Well, partially because they weren't armed. I mean, if someone has a gun and you don't, they're going to be running the show. Our government is not totalitarian now, right? Uh, despite what some people think. Uh, but what if it was 10 years from now? What if it suddenly got, you know, to be a little handmaid's tailish? You know, I'd want to be able to fight back in that instance. I'd want to have guns and I'd want millions of other citizens to also have guns and be able to fight back. Wanting to have an armed citizenry to me is not paranoia. It's pragmatic. It's logical. 
Anti-vaxxers, right? They yell about vaccinations primarily because they've always lived in a world where most lethal diseases are preventable and curable, right? They don't remember how bad things were before. So now vaccinations seem unnecessary to them. They take them for granted. I think the same is true with guns, right? People who laugh at the idea that we don't need an armed citizenry anymore, I think are failing to look properly at history. We have never had to live through autocratic oppression. We have never had to fight in a revolution to keep our freedom or to have freedom. That doesn't mean we won't have to at some point. And if we do have to, I sure as fuck would like some guns. And as far as me not, you know, uh, oh, I guess uh, focusing enough on government overreach in the Ruby Ridge case, to me, it's about what, you know, the, the Weavers did. It's like, yeah, that sucks that somebody took a shot on his wife in the situation they did. But it didn't happen like, what kills me about the Ruby Ridge thing is it didn't happen. It's not like, you know, he, sh he doesn't show up to court and the very next day, the fucking tanks are rolling in and they're just lighting them up. Now, it went on for well over a year and he's doing like an armed, like he's guarding his property for the government, like to prevent the government from coming in, making his 14-year-old son like do an armed like perimeter basically, you know, uh, you know, defense of the property. But the government aren't coming for him at that point because they're just wanting to fucking oppress him. They're coming because he has broken the law and refuses over and over and over again to come to court. And at that point, yeah, then fuck you, right? If you're gonna if you're gonna engage in knowingly in an armed standoff with the uh, with law enforcement, and the police, in my opinion, you don't get to then fucking cry about how they came down too hard on you. It's like that's so fucking ridiculous. It's like when people resist arrests and then complain about police brutality. Well, you shouldn't have fucking resisted arrest in the first place, you fucking idiot, right? It's just so weird to me. It's like when somebody punches somebody and then gets their ass kicked and then they take that person to court. Well, he fucking kicked my ass. Well, then you shouldn't have fucking punched him. Well, you started the fight, you fucking dumb shit. All right, now back to Gary's message. Clearly, I get worked up about this shit just like Gary does. Gary writes, I'm very passionate about this topic. Obviously, I am too. Uh, Gary says, I have many good friends who don't uh, agree with me on this, but I will not budge when it comes to my family's safety, my rights as a human to keep and bear arms. No victim equals no crime in my eyes. That is a great point. Uh, Thanks for all that you do. I enjoy Time Suck. The Secret Suck. We'll soon dive into Scared to Death. Please don't take this message the wrong way. I did not. I wouldn't have taken it the wrong way if you would have been much more against what I said. Uh, I'm just curious to see how you make heads or tails of my viewpoint, and maybe one or both of us can walk away from this a little more educated on the topic. Uh, I think both. Also, looking forward to seeing you this Saturday in St. Louis at Helium Comedy Club with Chris Tyler and CJ, 7 p.m. Hope I get to meet you. I'll practice the spaces you're greeting beforehand so I don't seem like an amateur. Ah, man, I'm looking forward to giving you the, the, the shake. Your loyal spaces are Gear Bear. P.S. Every time you mention the radio show in St. Louis at 105.7, the point, you mess it up. LOL. It's Rizzuto Show, not Rizzo Show. They mentioned that a few weeks ago uh, when you mentioned them in a past suck and they said they would talk to you about it. <laughs> I actually was texting with Moon on the show this morning. I was, thank you for, for letting me know about this so I was able to preemptively apologize. Um, yes. I love your stance, Gary. Uh, hope we never ever need guns to fight for our freedom. But if we do, man, holy shit. Uh, I'm going to be glad to have some guns. So hail fucking Nimrod. Our next, our next update comes in from Top Shelf Meat Sack, Susan Reimer. Susan wrote, Hi, Dan. I just listened to the Ruby Ridge suck and I'm so happy to hear a fair, rational take on the event. Having grown up in an Assembly of God household, replete with copies of the late great planet Earth uh, and other wackadoodle masterpieces, I grew up fearing the mark of the beast, barcodes, satanic cults, Procter & Gamble logos, <laughs> and being told that I'd have to defend my family someday. Even now in 2020, my dad is building his own off-the-grid fiefdom in the mountains above Lake Chelan. 
My family has been a whirlwind of don't tread on me flags, guns, <laughs> and children without social security numbers. See, this is the shit I'm talking about. Right? I, think it's, I think it's good to keep some guns to, you know, theoretically keep the government in check, but some people take it so far, I just get the feeling that they so want the government to come after them. They want to fucking shoot people, right? They, they, they want to have that war. They've dedicated their life for it. That to me is like, you're just being a paranoid, bloodthirsty weirdo. Uh, and then they write that. And I'm one of the perverted tranny weirdos. The idiots of the internet complain about boo. That, that, that was uh, written in by Susan. That was not my addition there. As usual, I loved your fair balance perspective. There's nothing wrong with Christianity. There's nothing wrong with living simply, but there is definitely something wrong with the paranoid, delusional, hateful environment that I left behind. Little Kirk Cameron reference. I hope this toxic brand of paranoia dies a much deserved death someday. Makes way for a hopeful, optimistic view of human beings and our collective future. Take care, Susan Reimers. Well, thank you, Susan. I love your thoughts here. Yes, Christianity in general, not the problem. This hateful version of Christianity is a big problem. And I also hope it dies the fuck out completely. More love and forgiveness, more calls to lead a positive and righteous life. Less fire and brimstone. Shove the fire and brimstone up your fucking ass. Less arbitrary and subjective moral judgment based on cherry-picked verses. Less calls for the end of days. Right? If you want the world to end that badly, you can't just throw yourself off a cliff. You don't have to take the rest of us with you. Uh, Hail Nimrod. Now for an update regarding last week's suck from kick-ass Christian meat sack, Matthew Walkup. Talk about some good Christianity. Matthew writes, Dear Master Suck, bias up front, I am a fundamentalist Christian, every jot and tilde. You aren't wrong about these biblical literists. They create their own God from the Bible like it's some fucking make-your-own-adventure book. Also, the Bible isn't, here's where you're wrong, political nor life's instruction manual. Your perspective on the Bible is merely the other side of the same coin. The Bible is to teach specifically what man is to believe concerning God and what duties of uh, God requires of man. Not a party line, not a political ideology, not whatever you, me, anyone thinks. If God exists, we must uh, heed. And if he doesn't, we mustn't care. This is despite our own bias. Now, there are some practical, cultural, and political ideas that could be extrapolated. Uh, for example, Matthew 21 through 16 implies property ownership is a God-given right. But these concepts are entirely ancillary to the thesis of a given passage. Lastly, regarding false teachers, here's a sample of some harsh words Jesus had to say about them. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Matthew 18, 6. There's a lot more I can say. Sorry for the long email being long already. Love the podcast. Great episode. Wouldn't change a thing. Three out of five stars. <laughs> well, thank you, Matt. Uh, I feel like the premise of what you say about the Bible not being open to interpretation, that it's, uh, you know, it's... Uh, that, you know, people shouldn't bend it to their will. This is a problem for many. It's just very difficult to interpret ancient passages in a modern world, which is why, which is why I am against a strict form of literalism. And I think you are too. I think while you identify as a fundamentalist in your beliefs, you know, you're you're not clearly not, you know, literally taking each word from the Bible and you know and, and trying to live exactly that way. You're focusing on the central thesis of the passages. Uh, and that to me is interpreting it, uh, you know, a little bit. I feel like you have to, like, like, like if you look again at the book of Leviticus, I know I go to that one a lot, but chapter 20, verse 10, King James version, and the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. I don't think you would literally have somebody killed for adultery. I think you'd interpret this as God letting Christians know that God doesn't like adultery. It's not a good thing to do. It's harmful. It's bad. So you shouldn't do it. And again, that to me is interpreting it. I mean, does this make sense? You know, I just feel like even like, like even when you're a fundamentalist, you're still not literally following each verse to the letter that it is written. You're taking the central message 
and living your life by that thesis, as you kind of kind of reference, not like actually taking somebody and fucking killing them uh, for cheating. Uh, thank you for hanging with my musings uh, about your faith during that suck. I'm sure at points it was super annoying uh, for you to have to listen to. Uh, awesome time sucker Anthony Shack now writes in with a message regarding a former time sucker update. I love I love these. Love when someone comments on what someone else has written. Uh, they write, greeting suck master and fellow meat sacks. I was recently listening to the Girl Scout murder suck and Derek from the updates really hit home for me. I am a recently divorced father of a three-year-old. I too worked in the oil field, worked day and night, traveling the country with my then wife and child, doing what I thought at the time was the best thing for my family. One day while I was working a few hours uh, where we were living, my ex-wife came to my hotel, dropped off my then year and a half year old boy, two dogs and said she couldn't handle it anymore. Uh, I was completely lost. And with traveling uh, involved in the amount of hours I worked, I was forced to quit my job. I ended up moving back home with my kid, started working for about a quarter of what I used to. The last year and a half has been a constant struggle with a massive amount of debt I was left with, but I'm healthy. More importantly, my son is happy, healthy, surrounded by friends and family that absolutely love him. I'm also in my hometown. I went through times of deep depression, anxiety, and just being pissed off at the world, but it does get better. Can't say that I'm doing great, but I'm okay with that now. The best thing I did was figure out my life as an individual and father. And in the end, I know that whatever comes up with, I can deal with. As I sit here and write this, I look at my son. I wonder how somebody wouldn't want him in his life and it makes me sad for her. Sorry for the long run on sentence, uh, you know, making babble, but I guess I just want Derek to know he's not alone. Things do get better over time. And in the end, the most important thing is that the little meatball we're raising is happy and healthy. They can truly save our lives and not even know it. Shout out to all the single parents out there doing the most important job in the world. Hail Nimrod, praise Lucifina, and most importantly, keep on sucking. Well, thank you, Derek, for a beautiful message. Great job being a great dad. The world can never have enough great parents, and there always seems to be a chronic shortage of great dads. So thanks for filling that in. Uh, love what you're doing. Love that you took time to, to help inspire Derek by writing that message. Hail Nimrod to you, Lucifina. She thinks you're hot as fuck. She's coming for you, my friend. She loves single dads taking care of the kids. Uh, new Two more messages, some funny ones to end on. Uh, some Cummins Law messages. Cody Hamilton writes in regarding being another victim of Cummins Law. Uh, let's hear about Cody's embarrassment. Cody writes, what's up, mother sucker? My name's Cody. I came across a suck a couple months ago via the Heartland Radio 2.0 podcast, and it only took one episode for me to know I needed to suck hard. I listened to the suck via speaker. I keep my sweatshirt. The reason for writing in is because of an embarrassing moment with my manager via your unique fabric choices for your merch. I'm a zookeeper at a small zoo north of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I was listening to the Andrew Jackson suck and you were describing how the new sweatshirt was made out of 400% lemur belly button. You said this just as I was leaving the lemur house at the zoo and my manager was standing right outside the door. She looks at me and says, I don't care what you listen to. Just don't be harvesting any of our animal belly buttons. I couldn't help but laugh. Figured you might get a kick out of this as well. Sorry for the long email. Hail Nimrod, praise Mojangles. Keep on sucking, suck master. I love that so much, man. Uh, Cody, what are the fucking odds that someone will be leaving the lemur house of a zoo at the exact moment I'm talking about harvesting lemur belly buttons? And then that's when the lemur manager hears it. And I'm sure her job title is not lemur manager, but I love pretending that it is. Thanks for enjoying this suck. Have fun with those lemurs. If, if they do die, rather than just bury them, can you please send me at least one belly button? I got a lot of, listen, I got a lot of shit to keep soft. And now Meat Sack Extraordinaire Abby sends in one of the funniest messages I've gotten in a while. Another Cummins Law message, a, a, a bad slash good one. She writes, hello, master of suck. I was listening to your suck on Ruby Ridge. And when you chanted, handy, randy, making the boys feel dandy, handy, randy, you just have to give them candy. 
my coworker, who is named Randy, walked by. I later get called up to the HR office and find out I've received a notice from HR (laughs) telling me that chanting Handy Randy is inappropriate. And this uh, mark will appear on my record. It seems that my coworker thought I was mocking him. Despite me being female and having a pretty pretty medium-pitched voice, my coworker uh, thought that I was saying that. He may need to get his hearing checked, and I may have to wear earbuds when I'm near him. Thought you would get a good laugh out of that. Sincerely, Nimrod's loyal follower, Abby. Oh, my God. I did get a good laugh. Sorry you got written up, and holy shit, what a fucking sensitive Sally Randy is. What a crybaby. Why couldn't he go talk to you? Sounds like Randy's a real bummer, real Debbie Downer. If I worked with you, I would now dedicate myself to figuring out how I could sneak in more handy Randy taunts without getting fired. Handy, Randy, making the boys feel dandy. Maybe just hum that around him in the break room. Leave little notes on his lunch. Hope you have a great day, Handy Randy. I'm a child. Uh, thank you for sending the message, everyone, and uh, bye. Time suckers, I needed that. We all did. That's all for this week's meat. Uh, that's all for this week's. That's all for this week's. That's all for this week. Singular meat sacks. Don't let your doctor give your grandparents a lethal dose of morphine. Instead, tell your sweet nana and papa to stay away from needles and to, to keep on sucking. He clearly had his apples all fired up and he didn't even fuck anyone's neck one time. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.